This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With over 400,000 downloadable titles, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, fiction, and self-development, head on over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast and sign up for a one-month free trial and to get your free audiobook. Show Audible and the MJCast some love. That's audibletrial.com slash the MJCast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass, you become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to season seven of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and I'm so lucky to be here with my co host, Elise Capron, and also uh, returning guest host, Ricky Alexander. Uh, Ricky, we'll start with you. Welcome to the MJ Cast, or welcome back, I should say. Hello, thanks for having me again. We are thrilled to have you, man, especially after that awesome History 25 appearance uh, last season in Season 6, which was certainly a highlight of the uh, of the season, I think, and we've gotten so much feedback on that episode, and, and I loved your thoughts on it, so thank you. Thank you. I really... I really enjoyed writing that, and I looked back, and I was I was still very proud of it, so that's, and that's an accomplishment for me. I'm never satisfied with my writing, really. That's a great episode. It's one I have listened to multiple times at this point. It's fantastic. For sure. And I can't wait to get into your to your recent writing as well, Ricky. I absolutely love the new article you've done. Elise, welcome to Season 7. We're here. We made it. Season 7. Yes. I am so happy to be here. It's so exciting to launch a new season. I can't believe it. Really, really happy to be here and just uh, happy to be chatting with you guys. And Jamin, Jamin, this is the first episode that we have been on together in like the past year. (laughs) I know. How did that even happen? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I think we were just so, because season six was like a different sort of vibe and a different way of doing things for us. and, And we were kind of putting a lot of efforts into our jobs and families it was really useful to be able to take the reins of separate episodes each but I'm glad we can be here together doing this one absolutely and I have to also just give a shout out to Q who is so fantastic um, any new listeners I mean he's part of the founding MJ cast team mm-hmm. and our co-host for a long time and he really came in at the end of season six to help us out with the last couple episodes. So thank you so much again, Q. That meant the world to us and we love you badly. Yeah, absolutely. Things were kind of uh, getting a bit crazy there in my personal life uh, towards the end of that that year. It was not the best time in my uh, my, <laughs> my life, but everything is 100% A-OK now. And Q, as he does, just like swooped in to save the MJ cast day. And uh, <laughs> we're very, very grateful. But here we are, season seven. Very excited to be here with with you, Elise and Ricky. And we have got a bunch of news topics to talk about today because so much has happened 
in the Michael Jackson world since we recorded our Christmas special with Taj and Q and Charlie. So here we are to talk about all the different news. But but before we get into that, I got to say, Ricky, I hope you're feeling okay because uh, you sadly came down with, with COVID a little while ago and we just want to check that you're feeling okay and you're recovering all right. Oh, yeah. Um, it was... Pretty tough. Um, I'm feeling pretty good now. I'm pretty much back to normal in all ways. I lost my taste about midway through, but that's finally back. And it's worse than the flu that I can tell you that I, I was fortunate that I didn't have to go through any of the breathing problems or the really bad coughing problems, but I got just about every other symptom. But fortunately, I'm doing much better now and I can get back to um, focusing on getting my life in order, to say the least. And Ricky, other than that, I mean, we're so glad you're better, but also we have to congratulate you because you've gotten engaged since you were last on the show. So we're so happy for you. Thank you so much. You know, your fiance is also a big MJ fan, right? Yes, that's, that's kind of how <laughs> I got kicked off. That's how you guys got together. I didn't know that. Yeah, I want to know this story. Come on, tell us the story. Yeah, what is the story? Oh, wow. Wow. I've never actually just shared the story, but... um. I don't know, but say, um, I'll be honest. Uh, when I first got introduced to the MJ fandom, thanks to um, one of my mutuals, her name is Tiffany, um, I was just getting back into really listening to Michael all the time again and discovering a lot more about him than I did before. And I don't know, I saw, I saw her on my timeline once and I was like, wow, she's so pretty. And I just... She was nice, but I felt like I maybe could talk to her, but I was I was terrified. But one day, I eventually, I just decided to reach out, and I was like, hey, I hope this isn't weird, but, you know, I'd like to get to know you if it, if it isn't a problem. And I didn't really know if it would go anywhere, but since she, you know, obviously I'm from the United States and she's from Germany, but we hit it off like nobody I've ever known in my life. We, we talked like we had known each other for years. We were sending literally pages, paragraphs, every every message for over a month. We, we just connected on such a spiritual level and we just seemed to have the same life being two people who came from completely different backgrounds and we just related like I've never related to anybody. And fortunately it was the same, it was the same for her. So we just decided to see what would happen. And here we are two years later, about to get married actually. Oh, man, that's so special. Congratulations. Thank you so much. When are you guys getting married? Well, there's so much going on with COVID. We're trying, we're aiming for March or April. That's a, um, the requirements to get married in Germany are um, very interesting. I have to send my birth certificate, uh, my passport, my, well, a certificate that I've never been married. I have to send that to the governor and get that approved. <laughs> I have to get wow. that <laughs> by the governor of Tennessee and send that to Germany so she can set us a date. So we're still aiming for March or April, but I'll be going over there. And Oh, so are you going to live in Germany? Actually, we just very recently came to the conclusion that that's probably the best idea for right now. I'd say it'll save us some money because the idea was we would get married and I would uh, mingle with their family for a while. And then she would come and live over here for the year. And we would go from there. But it's looking like it's a better option for me to just go to Germany now. So that's what we're planning on right now. That's cool. How's your German? Um, not great. <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> have to learn as I go. That's for sure. I can I can speak the basics like, you know, hello. You're going to have to and, get onto Duolingo. Literally. That's where I started learning. So I know 
a few basic things like Vasa. And I'm not even going to try to say it because she's going to laugh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Germany, I think, is our um, largest non-English speaking listener base on the MJ cast. So we'll probably have a lot of German listeners right now ready to wow. give you some feedback. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have to pass on that one for now. The, um, there's, um, she taught me a few like, ich liebe dich and ich vermisse dich, stuff like that, you know, basic love stuff. Like, that's I love you and I miss you. Oh. I just love how you guys met. That is the most 2021 thing I've heard somebody say yet. Instead of meeting someone across the floor of a bar, it was meeting someone on their timeline. <laughs> what did you say? I saw her on my timeline. <laughs> Literally, and I, just, I had the biggest crush from that point on, and I just, I really wanted to talk to her. We we interacted one time on the timeline, and I was like, wow, she's so nice. So that that was the one interaction that made me feel okay. Maybe I can do it. I think, I think when I sent the message, I had to put my phone down and walk away for like ten minutes. I was terrified. Uh, <laughs> Twitter is such a, a cooler place to meet your uh, future wife than where I met my wife, which was Skype. And uh, <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't know that, Jamin. Look at all these things we're learning today. She added me though. She added me. I got to say that I did add her. She found me on Skype. So. <laughs> How did she find you on Skype? Well, we were both really interested. Uh, when when Lee and I first met, we were both really interested in, um, you know, learning each other's languages because I wanted to go and teach English in China and she wanted to to travel through Australia and, and wow. possibly teach Chinese here. So at that time, Skype had like a, I don't think they have this anymore, but they had like a search function where you could sort of search for people that had similar interests and, you know, backgrounds and different things to you. So I think she searched me out and added me. And then, um, you know, she must have searched like teacher or Australian or whatever. And and then we just started chatting. We It was kind of like a language exchange situation to start with. And then I traveled through China, as I always wanted to do. And then we met and fell in love. Wow. That, that is, is so wonderful. Magical. I've, I had always been meaning to ask you, Jamin, if if Lee was living in China when you guys met. So now you've answered my question. I've had lingering in the back of my head. Yeah, I moved over there for a while. I lived there for a few months and then she, then we did a long distance thing forever. It seemed like forever. It was years actually. And then, um, yeah, she moved over to Australia and I think, yeah, well, actually yesterday was the first day of the Chinese new year and she is the, she, it's her year. She's a, she's, she's <laughs> the year of the cow and my students laughed the other day when i said this in class i said my wife is a cow but uh she actually is she's <laughs> she's here of the cow <laughs> well happy chinese new year to her that's very exciting oh sure, oh, sure. <laughs> that's so wonderful how did you meet your partner elise now that ricky and i have shared <laughs> come on um oh my gosh you guys so my husband jared who you know is from also an exotic location called Ohio. Um, <laughs> That's where crack corn comes from. Yes, it is ex- exactly <laughs> quite close to um, to where he's from. But uh, no, Jared and I. This is really dating me. We met you guys. We met on MySpace. Whoa, whoa! So we all wow. used a social media platform to that. Yes. Is excellent. <laughs> wow, we can all relate. <laughs> it's true it's true but we lived in the same town so we didn't have to do a long distance thing <laughs> okay yeah that's awesome right yeah 
But you are lucky, Ricky, to have found a fellow um, MJ fan partner. We were uh, just talking the other day in our little chat about the occasional challenges of having a partner who is not as much of a Michael oh Jackson fan. <laughs> Wow, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, Jared recently set a rule that when we're watching TV together, I cannot turn on anything Michael Jackson themed. <laughs> oh, wow. That's like, okay, Nate, minus one point for Jared. What I put Lee through with what I watch on TV, because our TV's in the living room, um, and I just, in, we have a bit of an open plan house where the kitchen is connected and. I've always got a concert on or something like that. And she just puts up with it. But every once in a while, I will notice her. She is a Michael Jackson fan. She tries to hide that she is because she knows how much I'm into it. But every once in a while, she'll be glued to that TV. I put on the Lisa Marie Presley, um, Diane Sawyer interview the other night. And she was she was glued to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. <laughs> Having someone who willingly listens to Billie Jean over and over and again in the car is actually very special. That's I've never had mm. that. It means more to me than you would think, honestly. I don't know. It's such a big part of me that, that having someone who can understand that is just, it's irreplaceable. Do you guys ever get into like hectic debates about things to do with Michael or are you pretty much on the same page about his life? And That's, I don't think we've ever had many topics on MJ where we just straight up disagree. Let's say I might say, Oh, you know, I like Baby Be Mine a little bit more than PYT. And she's like, really? Uh, but other than that, <laughs> other than that, not really. We tend to have more or less the same views on albums, on songs, on videos, live performances, him as a person. I mean, his choices, you know, what he went through. I mean, we, we tend to just view him the same. I don't know. It's it's so hard to explain. It's almost like we're the same person with a, almost every topic, even beyond Michael Jackson. It, it's amazing. That's very cool. Congratulations again. And we will be glued to your social media accounts to to see those wedding pictures come through and everything. And we're just super, super excited for you, man. So congrats. Thank you so much. And I said, they're going to be lovely. I, I don't take a lot of pictures, but this is something I have to get a photographer for. Absolutely. Are we going to see any little MJ touches at the wedding? Any like sequined... Uh... Items of clothing, or <laughs> um, you may or may not. I I'm going to let you find out. All right. <laughs> I'm really hoping for a choreographed dance. Oh. Oh well. Well, unfortunately, we're not actually we're not doing a big wedding. We're gonna we're gonna go to the courthouse, and her family's gonna be there. But there's it's gonna be really hard for both of our families to get together. My dad's sure. you know, a little bit older, and it's hard to just say, "Hey, let's fly to Germany." You know what I mean? So, unfortunately, it's just going to be me. Uh, over there for now but we're 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 trying to make arrangements for her to come back here and still meet my people so that part is a little hectic but we're just trying to get it on paper for right now but we'll still have some cool shots for sure very nice very nice well elise we talked earlier about social media apps and uh the joy that uh they've brought us in our lives uh <laughs> but skype is something that has not been bringing us so much joy lately so just a heads up for our listeners uh we are trialing a totally new way for us of recording episodes we're using a web app called zencaster we were originally tipped off to it by the janet ladies because i think the janet janet jackson podcast ladies Courtney and Cam use this app. They told us about it. So we're giving it a shot now. And so far it's working really good. But if we sound a little different or whatever in this episode, please uh, be forgiving of us. We're still trialing this new way for us. 
fingers are crossed. I think it's going well so far. Yeah, I think so. I like it. Elise, do you want to take things away with the first news topic of the season? Sure. So we have a lot of news to get through. It's been, you know, uh, over a month since we've had an episode and a lot has happened in the world of Michael Jackson. So our first news item is related to the one and only Neverland Ranch, which we have heard has been sold to Ron Burkle. The news item on this is that it has sold for $22 million to billionaire Ron Burkle. Burkle has had a lot of connections with the family, which we can talk about in a moment. And just to give you listeners a sense, I'm sure you are all aware of this, but of course, Neverland has been on sale for several years. It was first listed at $100 million in 2015 and was listed for $31 million last year and, of course, has sold for quite a bit less. There are some questions about what Burkle is going to do do with this. The term land banking has been thrown around, uh, which is a little bit worrisome, perhaps. However, given Burkle's connections with Michael Jackson, he's been supportive of Michael over the years. They knew each other, of course. And so hopefully it's in good hands. Uh, Do you guys want to talk a little bit about the Burkle connection? And then we can jump into some other points around Neverland itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, I did a little bit of research this morning. I knew of his name prior to researching only through his mention in the Thriller 25 booklet. If you go and have a look through that, Michael gives him a very a special shout out. And, and we know that album came out in the late 2000s. And then I started digging a little bit more into that. It turns out that he was somewhat connected to Michael through the pre-trial era in terms of giving things like financial advice and support during difficult times for Michael. There's rumors out there. I don't know if this is true, but there's rumors that because he's like a supermarket king and owns a billion different supermarkets that he may have owned the supermarket that Michael toured through uh, during, remember that in the private home movies, he like got a whole supermarket to himself and his different employees made, they were like in disguise. Uh, There's talk that maybe Ron Burkle owned that. I'm not really sure about that. The other story I read about him was that during the trial, when Randy Jackson was managing his brother and his affairs, that Randy was trying to get Michael to sell the Sony ATV catalog at that point. I don't know if that's true, but apparently there was a phone call that took place. Ron Burkle responded to Randy Jackson's wishes to try and sell that catalog uh, it was offered to Ron and, and apparently he declined saying no way that Michael's got to keep that for his children. So there is some stories out there about Ron really having Michael's back. The 3T video, Why, was apparently filmed at his mansion. I'm not sure how true all of this stuff is. It's just things I've read. I've never heard him say anything bad about Michael. So, And he was thanked in that booklet. So he must have had Michael's back to some degree. So in, in some way... Even though I'd love the kids and the estate beneficiaries to have ownership over Neverland, I'm kind of, well, if that was to be the case, we know who'd be handling things, right? That'd be John Branker, of course. So, And that's been very problematic uh, over the past decade. So I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that somebody who was Michael's friend has, has control that can look after it. And I hope that there's a good future in, in place for Neverland with Ron Burkle. Absolutely. About Ron Burkle himself, I honestly don't know much about him. The only time I've ever 
seen Michael refer to him was um, I was just talking about this. Um, my, I looked up where if Michael had ever responded to the uh, Janet controversy at the Super Bowl, and he said at the time he was at Ron Burkle's house when it happened. And so I was like, oh, so they must have been, you know, a little closer than we would know behind the scenes. He was uh, never mentioned, to my knowledge, in the bodyguard book, so I'm not sure how close they were in the final years after the trial, but that's that's about as much as I know about him. But, you know, it's good for me to see that Neverland has, you know, finally found an owner. It's kind of been sitting there, and unfortunately, after 2019, it has gotten more of an ominous image, so it's good to see somebody finally took it off the market. And, you know, the estate has talked about it for a long time, that they can't do anything with Neverland, especially as pertains to like a museum or a tourism type of thing. And so with that in mind and knowing that Michael didn't want to live there ever again, it's just good to see that it's in good hands at this point. I'm sure it will remain a a relic for the fans as well. And on that note, Ricky, I actually have a really wonderful friend who has insider connections to Neverland Ranch, and she's written up some points exactly along the lines of what you've just brought up that really lay out for fans what the potential future for Neverland is and is not. And I wanted to actually share a few of those uh, because I think what she's written is great. So my friend's name, she goes by Velo. A lot of you will know her. She's a longtime person in the fan community as well as the Prince fan community too. She's just a wonderful person. I've become really close with her. I actually met her originally at the um, Square One premiere and we've become great friends since then. But she lived very nearby Neverland for several years. She's actually just recently moved back to the right to into LA, right with a view of Forest Lawn. But in any case, she actually wrote us like a six page (laughs) essay um, with all of her thoughts on Neverland and the sale, which is amazing. Thank you, Velo. But I'm not going to read all of that, of course. But I did want to bring up a few points that I think are just really good to solidify and hear. So first of all, about Tom Barrick, uh, who is the one who has really been in charge of Neverland for the last several years. Um, She really says that the ranch needed to be out from under Tom Barrick. However, that said, he has taken amazing care of the property. And he really rescued the property from foreclosure. There is actually a a quote here I have that says that under terms of an agreement struck with Jackson after Colony Capital purchased the note on the property for $23.5 million, when Neverland is eventually sold, Colony will recoup its investment in that note plus accrued interest, its management and upkeep expenses at around 12% of everything above that as a success fee. The rest will go to Jackson's estate. So that was a statement that was made after Michael died. And he really has taken good care of the property from what I understand and what Velo reports to me. And she also feels that Ron Burkle, given his connections to the family, is going to continue to take care of the property. Now, getting into the future of Neverland itself and what it can or cannot be. So I think some of what I'm about to say will, of course, be very well known to fans. But I'm always amazed when I'm on social media that I keep I still keep getting I see things swirling around about how it should be a museum and all this stuff. And so I wanted to just mention a few bullet points that Velo has really nicely clearly laid out about 
why this can't happen with Neverland. So this is just to be very clear about what can and cannot be done with this property. So number one, Neverland is zoned as an agricultural property, and that property cannot be divided. Now, the question I have is what that means for Burkle and this whole land banking quote that I see. Do you guys know what land banking means? I don't entirely know that, to be honest. I've actually never heard that term before today. Okay. Because I don't either. Because according to this and the zoning, nothing could be done with that. I don't know if that means subdividing the property into smaller properties. I think it it possibly could even mean just investing in the property while it accrues value um, and then just selling it later. Just I, I'm not really sure either. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing. But yeah, what, what you're saying is really interesting how there's certain laws and zoning requirements that are stopping Neverland from becoming what some fans want it to be. Right. And um, and that also goes into the fact that there is no infrastructure to support additional tourism elements that would mean like sewer roads, all this stuff that just can't happen. So the property is not going to be divided. Number one, the Santa Barbara County Zoning Department, apparently, according to Velo, is impossible to work with. So fighting them simply doesn't work. Also, there is the financial liability aspect, not even the upkeep of of the property itself, but the liability of having a lot of people on the property. Um, You know, that if somebody gets hurt, you know, et cetera, that's a real issue right there. So that's something to consider. Also, all the rides and animals are gone, as we know, and bringing all of that back really would be financially impractical. And there's also the idea that Neverland was never meant to make money. Michael, of course, invited everybody there and did not charge them and had candy and had all these wonderful things. And it wasn't about making money. And so I think the idea even that it would be a money making venture as some sort of you know, attraction kind of goes against Michael's ideals. Um, Bello also makes the really important point that not everybody who goes out there is a fan. And if uh, perhaps is the opposite of that, and if it were turned into an attraction, it might attract a lot more of that negative type of person. What Velo does point out so wonderfully, I think, is that what Neverland does have to offer is that it is a beautiful, beautiful piece of nature. There are hiking trails around the areas. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of land. And just going out there and frankly, being even near it, even stopping by the front gates is a magical experience. I've been there several times myself. And perhaps keeping it even just as those front gates, keeping a bit of magic to it, hopefully with someone who cares about that property and can take care of it, even if you know the attractions are never back, that sort of thing, might just keep, I think, some Something special about that land. It's a nice place to drive through and think of Michael and kind of keep the spirit of what it was. But anyway, so I don't know, have you guys, well, of course, Jamin, you have not, but Ricky, have you been to Neverland? No, unfortunately, it was and is still on my bucket list. Actually, the last time I went to Los Angeles was the year after Michael passed away, unfortunately. And I did go to Forest Lawn and I did go and take a picture in front of the house that he passed away in. And that's unfortunately as close as I ever got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there is this idea swirling around that Havenhurst would be a good spot for a museum, which seems to make 
so much more logistical sense. Um, so maybe that is something that can happen in the future. But I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it's never going to happen with Neverland. We're not going to see that. And I think we just have to hope for the best. I'm going to trust in Bello that people are taking care of it. Hopefully, Burkle will continue to. And, you know, just kind of keep it as a sacred space for fans that we can visit. But let's be honest, it's it's a place that Michael himself said he was never going to go back to. So that's where we are. Right. Yeah, I think they're all really great points, Elise. And I, I absolutely love that little essay that Valo sent through. And I hope that she turns it into some kind of blog article or something at some point, because it's really, really got a lot of information in there. Two bits of information that struck me as really interesting is Number one, the candy counter in the theater is still stocked and kept up to date with new candy even today, apparently. I found that interesting. And Michael's dance studio, apparently Tom Barrack, he did invest in maintaining a lot of things around the property. Apparently he put uh, the, the floor of the dance studio, there's a particular spot under a spotlight where the floor is really worn out in a circular pattern. Uh, apparently because Michael used to do like a lot of spins in that particular spot, uh, which is really fascinating. So he covered that whole section of timber flooring with plexiglass to protect it. And there's apparently a permanent video screen in there playing footage of Michael dancing in there and the, you know, the, the giving tree, the, the timber platform there and the, and the little bits of timber making a ladder up the, the giving tree. Apparently he replaced those because they were rotting away so, I mean, it sounds like to some degree that property has been really kept nice and it would it'd be mm-hmm. good if that could continue. Uh, on the note of it becoming a museum, even even if it was potentially able to be, which it's not, fans say they would like that. But that's one of those things that I think we wouldn't really know how we feel about it until it's actually really happening. Like imagine there being a restaurant on the property where they're selling alcohol. And, you know, that's why it's so controversial when you look at Paisley Park and the Prince Estate. There's a lot of Prince fans who are disgusted by what's gone on at Paisley Park. You can go there and visit, but, you know, they're selling alcohol on the property and we know that Prince was a strict Jehovah's Witness and it's not as easy as just saying they should turn it into a museum. I, I like your line of thinking, Elise, about what Michael would have wanted and I'm not sure he would have wanted that for Neverland. I guess we'll never know. And oh, and I should add also that uh, there also I see swirling around that fans could buy the property, but you guys, we can't, namely because <laughs> as Velo points out, property taxes were over $355,000 in 2019. <laughs> A GoFundMe is not going to cover it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, once we go fund me, I mean, what are we going to do with it? Who? <laughs> we have a big sleepover. Get some cows on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, you know, on to our next news story. Um, Brad Sundberg, who interestingly was very instrumental in getting Neverland to be what it was, at least in terms of the audio systems all around that property. He has launched a new podcast. The Michael Jackson podcast space has expanded again and there is a new Michael Jackson. Well, it's not, I wouldn't call it a Michael Jackson podcast actually. It's called In the Studio uh, and there are four out of the six episodes um, that have come out on that are to do with Michael Jackson. But the podcast is is all about 
studio experiences and stories and and what it's like to be in studio sessions when artists are recording all from the point of view of Brad Sundberg who is a a studio engineer and there's episodes the non-Michael Jackson episodes on there include ones about you know Mariah Carey and and different artists but the Michael Jackson ones are, are actually really interesting there's one on Neverland there's one on the Christmas song that was recorded during the history era that never came out and the latest one's all about studio etiquette and how to really use and enjoy a studio to a professional level if you're looking at doing that, but through the lens of what it was like to be in studio sessions with famous artists, including Michael Jackson. And guys, I'm sure you'd agree with me that Brad is an incredible storyteller. And I really enjoyed the last 20 minutes of that studio etiquette episode where he tells a great story around recording black or white and what how that was different to, um, for example, Bill Bottrell's sessions with Black or White being different to Bruce Swedean's with Jam and really, really fascinating stuff. So I do implore everyone listening to go out and subscribe to In The Studio, the podcast, because Brad is doing a great job there. Yeah, I think his podcast episodes also agree are excellent and they give a great little taste of what his live events are like as well. This wonderful storytelling, kind of organic, you know, really engaging chat with the guests he has on. Um, it's a great little taste of those events if you have not been to one. I was supposed to go to the LA event um, in June, but of course that's been postponed till who knows when. So it's fantastic to have these little snippets as a replacement for that until we can do those events again. Ricky, have you heard any of Brad's episodes yet? Oh yeah. Um, I checked out the creation of Neverland and um, the Christmas episode. I thought it was very interesting because, you know, one of the many things that I do want to do right now is actually go to one of his sessions and, you know, hopefully pick his brain and, you know, just get a more of a feel of what it's like working with Michael Jackson and how he actually was on a daily basis. Those are the kind of things I try to find out now, but he's, he's very great at putting you there and showing you exactly how things work. And I don't know, transporting you. I've enjoyed everything I've listened to so far. I honestly want to listen to more than just what he has to say about Michael. I want to see, you know, just how his career has gone. He's, he's very interesting. It's also cool because I really wanted to hear what he had to say for the History 25 roundtable as well, and he decided not to go through with that. But, you know, so it's cool to get that inside view from him as well. But, yeah, I have checked out a few of them. Yeah, I love the the Christmas song episode, too, because he actually has two of the people who were kids during that recording. And I think what's so special is that you have these people on who they weren't studio collaborators. Like, they didn't work with Michael Jackson later in their life, but they had these singular experiences. And even now, these many, many years later, they talk in detail about how working with Michael Jackson was unlike working with anyone else, how they remember his kindness and just what an incredible human being he was and how it, it was a different type of recording session than they did for anything else. And these these were people who as kids were doing studio sessions every day of the week around school. So I just love hearing that. You really get a sense of who he was as a human being, in addition to an artist. Of course. And, and it's uniquely Michael because, of course, in the middle of June in New York City, he decides to have the <laughs> entire studio decked out in Christmas decorations, Christmas ornaments and that type of thing. It's like, of right. course, Michael would want it to go you know, over and beyond to make it feel like a Christmas atmosphere. And it makes sense. 
Yeah. So anyway, we are cheering you on, Brad, if you're hearing this and um, keep doing what you're doing. We love the content you're putting out. And it's so exciting that there are more and more podcasts about MJ right now. It's great. Especially from someone who was so closely working with him as well. Okay, so moving along to the next item, I want to get into some social media drama. Here we go. That <laughs> Ricky's that like was, rubbing his hands. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had our little fair share of, of drama in the last few months, but you know, it's all good. It's all good. We love discussion and welcome everybody to that. So we may have copped some heat on our stance regarding a couple of big figures within the MJ community, um, namely Razor Fist and John Ziegler. Um, and these really came from you, Jamin. So do you want to take the reins and talk about the little sequence of events that happened here in the fan community? Yeah, sure. I would love to. Uh, basically, uh, it all started really in the final weeks and days of Trump's reign of terror in the US and really just me listening to some tech podcasts deep diving into the history of how Trump was able to have so much sway and influence because of his prominence on social media and how people like you know Mark Zuckerberg and and Jack Dorsey allowed him to use the Facebook and Twitter platforms to spread misinformation, even though that was against their terms and conditions. And it really made me think about the Michael Jackson fan community. And I really just at that point had had enough of thinking about these quote unquote prominent individuals within the community being propped up by so many fans, regardless of the types of misinformation we're spreading. And I, and I had seen Razor Fist um, spread information, well, misinformation about, you know, he's, he is a clear Trump supporter and was saying things like the election was a fraud and all of that. And then on the Jod Ziegler side of things, he's not a Trump supporter, but he's an anti-masker and a climate change denier. And sure, both of them have been very supportive of Michael during the Leaving Neverland era and against the allegations and all of that kind of thing. But it, it really made me think of like, if we're going to continue to prop these individuals up, and I'm not talking about politics really at this point. I mean, I know that I just did say that Razor Fist was a Trump supporter, but more on the election fraud stuff. And it, it's more like if you take politics out of the equation, it's, it's more the fact that these people are spreading downright conspiracy theory pieces of misinformation. And the more Michael Jackson fans prop those individuals up, in my opinion, it, the more it makes us as a community look a little bit nutty. And what are we all about at the moment when it comes to leaving Neverland? We're about getting the truth out there in a balanced, reasonable way. And we want to be taken seriously when we're talking about those things. And to me, it was just kind of hurting that cause. So I, I just spoke up about it and did a couple of tweets and you know, sometimes my tweets go nowhere and sometimes they <laughs> cause a bit of a storm. And in that particular situation, yeah, it did, it did erupt into a lot of discussion. And again, again, bullying, you know, uh, some of us in the MJ cast team were getting, we're copying some serious flack over those tweets. And 
threats and different things. So anyway, that's how that all erupted. And then MJ News Digest did a, a, a bit of a feature on us uh, at their YouTube channel and everything that had gone on. To answer your question, Elise, that's pretty much what happened. I just want to add to that, that um, I, yes, there have been some moments of drama on our Twitter feed, but I really want to emphasize to listeners that the amount of bullying that we've gotten, like really terrible, you guys, like some kind of horrible stuff towards us has been a little bit out of hand. I I don't quite understand how things have gotten to this level, um, but I'm hoping that we can get to the point eventually maybe having more podcasters out there will kind of help like balance the the playing field a little bit but there's just kind of been a lot of hatred flying around and i hope we can get to the point where we can have civilized discussions with each other instead of just really going after each other to the level that um that things got with your tweet jamin um because it, it really did get quite out of hand so yeah I think the biggest is- the biggest grievances that people have around the MJ cast. Let's just lay it out. The biggest grievances okay. that these these quote unquote fans have is that we are apparently, in their words, the gatekeepers of the Michael Jackson fan community. We're apparently somehow trying to put ourselves on a pedestal and tell other fans what to do. And I just don't see it like that. When I when I tweet or say things on this show that are like what I just said before about like we we shouldn't necessarily support Razor Fist or John Ziegler. When I say things like that, that's not me trying to tell everybody what we have to do. That's just me giving an opinion. That's just an opinion. You can people can listen to that and go, what is he talking about? Of course I like John Ziegler, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's fine. They can have that opinion as well. It's just all a matter of opinion. And I don't I don't understand you know, why people, we are just a little old podcast of a few fans sitting around in their home offices and bedrooms talking about Michael Jackson. That's all we ever have been. And that's that we're very comfortable in that space. And we are not an authority on Michael Jackson. We speak to people who are authorities on Michael Jackson and experts, but we are not. We are just fans with opinions. And it does hurt when people say that we try to be something other than what we are. We aren't that. We aren't gatekeepers of the fan community and when people come at us saying you know over the past six months i have been called a pig i've been called fat i've been called a cuck somebody made a spotify podcast episode about me on it saying that they were going to come and find my family and that same person who i think goes by the name queen charcha 1969 on twitter has attacked some of my friends also friend of the show damien shields after making a comment, an opinion again, uh, around Michael Jackson's Remember the Time performance at Soul Train Awards, saying it wasn't one of his greatest moments, he was absolutely attacked by this person. She said a disgusting thing, something along the lines of um, him reminding her of a sexual abuser, which is a terrible thing to say and and a shocking attack on his personality. He's one of the most loving people I know. Like these are the kinds of things we are dealing with at the MJ cast when we give our opinion that might not be popular. And and I just hope people start to realize that that sort of stuff isn't okay. And and to add to that, if we ever do react to something 
strongly and way and maybe in a way that you think is too strong a reaction, do keep in mind that sometimes it's coming from a place where we have been really bullied aggressively about something and are overly sensitive because of that. Um, because of everything you just said, Jamin, the kind of messages that you've in particular gotten are completely out of line and out of hand. And I just don't understand it. It's quite, it's quite depressing to me. It's, and it's not just us. I've seen it happen to Ricky when we, after we did the history 25 episode, I saw again, a quote unquote fan throw a disgusting racial slur at Ricky that we jumped on and we reported and that person got banned for a period of time. But I mean, Ricky, you talk to us about your experiences in the community. You share very, very candid opinions on Twitter and cop some heat for those. What, what's your experience been? Oh, well, unfortunately, um, my experiences have been, most of my experiences with being attacked have been less related to, per se, my opinions on Michael Jackson and more so... Um, me as a person there's basically an entire side of the michael jackson fandom that believes they know things about me that they really don't these are people who have honestly never spoken to me never really taken the time to try to see who i am they've gone off what other people have told them about me or about sabby unfortunately I don't know. I mean, apparently it has just, it's just never stopped. I'd say Sabby, I'll be honest, like Sabby's gotten way worse of it than I have personally, but I being with her, you know, I get caught in the crosshairs a lot. And so there was, there was a time where people were trying to spread misinformation about us saying that Sabby's a racist and I'm a coon and stuff like that, you know, just trying to get people to dislike us and which made no sense. And Fortunately, there were some people who were able to see through that facade. And unfortunately, there were people who were taken in by that. And I just feel like at this point, a lot of us consider ourselves adults. And why are we going off and harassing and, you know, spreading misinformation about people we don't even know? You know what I mean? It's it's Twitter. We're all here just to enjoy Michael Jackson. At least that's why I'm here. I just want to share my thoughts about Michael Jackson, keep his legacy going and that that type of thing. So I try... The only thing I can do now is really try not to pay any attention to it. I try to keep those people on their side. I try to keep them muted, blocked, or whatever I have to do. I've advised Sabby to do the same as much as she possibly can as well. But that's the best we can do. It's, it, it gets really out of hand when you see people hopping on you for an opinion or, you know, you just minding your business. But it's also it's also way worse when they try to take it to that personal level as though they know you or they have some reason to be so hostile towards you. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of them I've never even talked to. And that's the part that I just can't wrap my mind around. The only thing I can try to do is try to rise above it, try to keep my head up, to be honest. And fortunately, the less I pay attention to it, the less it really bothers me. But it was it was a really terrible time last year, especially, where it just seemed like it, it just would never end. And I don't know what, from what I've heard, from what Savvy sometimes sees, sometimes it still goes, but I just... You know, I just try to keep moving with my day. That's all I can do, unfortunately. 
That's a great point you make about, and I've started to do that a lot over the last 12 months is kind of just tune out completely from if I don't even read it. Like I can see some of that stuff coming in on my timeline, but I just, I don't even read it now. And then I just block people that are being too aggressive in what they're saying. Uh, a lot of them are anonymous. A lot of them don't put their real face or name to their tweets. They just kind of, and I think the anonymity part of it is kind of a shield for them um, to be keyboard warriors. So they don't, you know, they, they don't have to expose themselves. And it is disappointing. And what I would love to happen really, and this is not just about the MJ cast or it, it's about any time we see bullying in the community. If somebody says an unpopular opinion, oh, Purple Rain's better than Thriller or whatever, <laughs> which we can get into. But like if somebody, if somebody, you know, says something like that, let them have that opinion. You don't need to be... You know, you can disagree with the opinion, but don't you don't need to flame people and attack and get personal. And if we see that kind of bullying, even if it's not directed at us, hit the report button. Reply to that person and say that's not okay and, and report them. I I just hope we can all start standing up for each other at, at some point. I don't know. There's so much hostility, you know what I mean? You know, some people can, you know, put their opinion out there and stand by it and not, you know, uh, you know, um, not feel attack but there are some people who just get so defensive as well i mean you know if i say something i mean i expect people to maybe be offended you know i'm like i'm i'm willing to talk it out you know you know hey you think what you think i think what i think but you know there are some people who just my opinion is my opinion don't come at me for it which kind of defeats the purpose but hey you know can't tell anybody what to do these days but i don't know there's there's a lot i mean but there's also the Twitter community is so diverse. You you know, you have adults and, you know, people in their mid-20s like myself. And then you have a lot of teenagers, too, who, you know, feel like it's cute to be that way, be so hostile, be so aggressive. They think it's, you know, it's funny, it's cute. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, you realize it's really not. You're really just making a fool out of yourself on an app. And maybe they'll realize it at some point. Maybe they won't. Maybe it's the, maybe it's that type of attention that gets them off. I mean, there are people who enjoy trolling and making other people feel uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, you know, sometimes I like to mess with my mutuals, you know, I might say, I might, you know, they might say like today, mine is the magic was like, Oh, slave is the rhythm should have been on dangerous. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. I'm just messing with it. Cause I know he loves the song, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> you know, not everybody, some people can take it. Some people can't. So, you know, I try to, I try to mess with people who can actually, you know, take it, but you know, some people actually really get off on making other people upset. And I mean, you know, I don't get it. I just, yeah. I like to share my thoughts. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point. I think people do really get off on it. There's, a, uh, and I'm going to name names here. There's an individual, Mickey D, who's a moderator at MJJF, uh, and uh, sorry, MJJC, and their posts have been horrific. There's a thread over there about love never felt so good, and this is a moderator. This is one of the staff members of the forum, and they are absolutely dragging people like. Damien Shields and and myself and the MJ cast on that thread talking about us saying things like that I that I think I'm God's gift to the Michael Jackson fan community don't know what we're talking about and that we are just completely anti-estate and <laughs> okay I'll give her that one we kind of are but you know that's <laughs> very dismissive as well of all the other things we do and and this person Nikki D she does she doesn't just attack us on the 
forum that she's meant to be a professional moderator of. But she also goes over to places like Lipstick Alley and Twitter and does exactly the same thing. And it really bothers me. And it's just, what is need? Why is that needed? How is that needed? I don't know. I guess that was their favorite song or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think ultimately, you know, the point is like we have to remember Twitter is a platform that is literally built for drama. Although, Jamin, I mean, what you bring up too in the forum, I've definitely seen some pretty terrible stuff going on there too. But especially from dramas this past year, I know we're working to you know, make sure everybody feels heard. We're working on it. And I hope that everyone else in the community, we can also work on it. We're here for the same reason. We're here to celebrate MJ. And maybe this year ahead, we can all do a a little bit better. Hopefully the political climate will will help us not all be so on edge. I do think that contributed to a lot in 2020 and and COVID, of course. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, that didn't help. I think every community around the place has gone through similar things. It's not specific to the Michael Jackson fan community. We see it all the time in, in lots of different fandoms. But really, it just goes back to, you know, just just being nice to other people and then calling out poor behavior if we see it. So I think we can have a better year ahead, like you said, Elise, for sure. Hopefully, yeah. Um, On that note, actually, I would like to just make one comment about MJ News Digest and Tony, who who runs that channel, his exposed series. We didn't talk about that too much yet. So MJ News Digest has been... the channel has been live, gosh, I don't know, for six months or something now. And um, he has just started this Exposed series. We have, uh, I believe, previously already talked about, um, no, I guess we didn't. We haven't done an episode since then, um, about Loving Neverland Exposed. And now he's done an MJ cast Exposed. So I will say about the MJ News Digest videos, they do tend to have really tabloidy headlines just the fact that it's exposed in the title and so i have some fan friends who come to me and say why is why is he doing this etc but tony is actually a great guy and he really does seem invested in getting balanced stories um and so for the mj cast exposed i mean he really he came to us he went he took on you know he took direct messages from anybody who wanted to comment on it and he really seemed to weigh all the sides of some of the drama that had swirled around. And I think he came back with a video that, you know, I was really happy with and um, I felt like was really balanced and honest about everything. And so, yeah, I want to really honestly thank Tony a lot for the work he's doing. I think it's a really interesting little kind of view upon the fan community that um, is, is, is a unique uh, perspective. I think he's the only person doing that currently. um, And I, I appreciate it. Yeah, he did a great job. I'm really yeah. happy with, with what he did there. And I'm looking forward to new ones as well in the future because he, he's offering a really great service to all of us as fans. When we did our um, annual feedback survey, and thank you, by the way, to all of the people, the hundreds of people that responded to that survey, really great information to help us course correct and improve the MJ cast moving forward. Um, but there was some comments that came through that where people actually wanted us to talk more about some of the drama that goes on in the social media space of the fan community. And although we do comment on that when it involves us, I think 
his channel is a really good place to go to for that. So if you haven't subscribed to Tony's channel yet, please jump on there and do that. Uh, MJ News Digest. He does these videos that kind of explain big blow up dramas that happen and he goes into all the different sides of them and often they're connected to opinions around michael jackson so it can be really fascinating to understand that and get the background so yeah please go over there and subscribe to tony all right ricky and elise let's take our first break to chat about one of our sponsors at the mj cast this is a company that we know michael jackson fans love audible now, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. And every month, members of Audible get one credit to pick any title they want, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. Great deal. And also, how difficult is it these days to get news from a completely reliable source, especially when we're using social media? It's tough. That's why... When we're with Audible, you get access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is completely free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across a range of devices without losing your spot, just like podcasting. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't sweat it. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series of books if you like. Now, being a history teacher and a huge fan of Michael Jackson, I bet that you guys have already guessed that I love reading. But the thing is, well, I'm a dad too. (laughs) And time is of the absolute essence in my life. Audible allows me to read when I'm on the go, whether I'm commuting to work or, or back from work or whether I'm you know, out and about, gardening outside, mowing the lawn, anything like that, or if I'm just trying to get to sleep late at night, I can read great books through listening on Audible. And right now, I'm listening to an incredible book by Mary Beard. She's a wonderful historian, incredibly brilliant woman who's written a comprehensive book on the Roman Republic and Empire, like all of Roman history, really, called SPQR. And it is fantastic. If you ever wanted to dive deep into ancient Roman history, you got to check out this book. It's really good. I know it's not a Michael Jackson book, but hey, (laughs) surprise, sometimes I like reading things that aren't connected to Michael. (laughs) Now, the thing I love about Audible is that it really helps you get your time back. Like I said, when you're commuting, when you're cooking, working out, anything like that, you can get your time back because you're doing two things at once. You're listening to a great book and whatever you're engaging with. It's fantastic. Now, you're listening to this podcast because you love learning just as much as I do, and listening to an audiobook is a similarly great experience to listening to a podcast. So head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast and register for a one-month free trial. You're going to love it, especially if you make your free book something Michael Jackson-related. I don't know, maybe like Bill Whitfield's Remember the Time, which is a phenomenal book written from the point of view of Michael Jackson's main bodyguard in the final years of his life. Learn about the real Michael. So head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast right now and sign up. Thank you, Audible, for sponsoring the MJCast. 
So moving on beyond drama, we have two new Michael Jackson books that have just been released this past month. And the first one is by Talitha Leanhan, and it is titled Michael Jackson and Me, A Real Life Fairy Tale. Um, So this book is about her experience as a true mega fan as a quote unquote follower over the course of quite a few years. And I would say that Talitha truly reached a level of fandom that most of us cannot even fully wrap our heads around. It's pretty amazing the things she got to do. And especially I would say towards the end of Michael's life. I mean, she really, she was in his house. She was seeing him nearly every day. Um, She has some incredible insights into that final year and really like six months of his life that are pretty unique. But yes, this book is just out. And uh, Jamin, you got to read it. Do you want to start with your comments about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I haven't read the entire book yet. Um, I'm partway through it. uh, And I have like jumped around to different parts um, that really have interested me in Michael's story. But yeah, I'm definitely going back and reading the whole thing start to finish. And it has immense, incredible detail. Like it is really a blow by blow recount of her story in following Michael in the years following really, you know, the history era onwards into those final years of Michael's life. And it is a touching story and it's funny the nicknames that Michael gave her and her friends, uh, Tick and Flea. And there's some really, really funny things going on in there and some great stories. And and honestly, it's a really good book to get an understanding of Michael as a person and how he interacted with his fans. If you weren't lucky enough to see him or wait outside a hotel for him and that kind of stuff, then you're going to be able to live vicariously through Talitha. And and I just feel really lucky that we as fans are getting books like this so many years later. It's been over a decade now um, since Michael passed. And and the fact that we're still getting amazing top quality books like this is is very we're very lucky. Uh, the effort that she's gone into and in document into documenting her experiences is just unreal. Like I said, the detail in there is incredible. I've got a little quote here I want to read uh, for everybody. And this is a little story, a little excerpt of uh, a time when she, she got to go into uh, Neverland, into Michael's house. And, and she says, We crammed into a walk-in closet where we recognized more of the jackets Michael had worn in public. He kept picking them off the racks and handing them to me. And I remarked about some I recognized from past performances. Oh, they're really heavy. How do you dance with them on? That's what you don't see when you watch me perform. You have no idea how heavy they are. But when I'm dancing, I don't think about it. I melt into the music. If you see a dancer and you see her counting one two, three. She's not really dancing. When you dance, you become the music, you become the rhythm, you forget everything else. Uh, He showed us a leather jacket that his longtime makeup artist and friend Karen Fay had made for him. She wanted to put everything I like on it, he said, pointing at its many badges and motifs. But she was a little cheeky. Look, and he pointed at a badge of Karen herself. We giggled at that. But what evoked the biggest response was a jacket with an image of the character Peter Pan, to whom Michael was often compared on the back surrounded by fairy lights 
oh, you have to wear this one, we all told him, to which he responded teasingly, will I, will I, provoking a chorus of impassioned pleas. Michael was leading us back along the corridor when we came to a short stairway and he remarked, you've been up there, right? No, we all said, come on up then. You can see where I sleep, he joked, my hyperbaric chamber. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just lots of little stories like that uh, of Michael and his uh, humor and how he joked with his fans. You're going to learn about the real Michael if you read this book. I will admit, I so I bought this book. I have the hard copy. It has a lot of great photos in it, by the way. Um, and it's a beautiful design. It's meant to actually, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a real life fairy tale. And it's actually kind of designed to look like a book you would, that would have a fairy tale published in it. But in any case, um I will totally admit that I went into this book thinking, oh gosh, it's going to be all these fan stories that I'm just going to be really jealous of and like annoyed about because <laughs> I didn't get to have these experiences. <laughs> but um, I have to say, Talitha really does tap into kind of what you were just saying, Jamin, Michael Jackson's humanity and heart. And I think I came to a new understanding of the level to which he truly did appreciate the fans and which they in a lot of ways fueled everything he was doing um, in ways that I probably hadn't fully appreciated before reading this book. I appreciate that a lot. And also just getting so deep into her experience of what it was like to be this type of fan, which is something I've never fully understood for as much as I am an MJ fan and, you know, spend every single day <laughs> doing something related to Michael Jackson for the podcast. I don't know that I could ever have seen myself as following him around everywhere and to every location he was going to and waiting for literally hours on the side of the street, often alone, as as she says. And yet this book really does give me insight into how that how that became a reality for her and what that meant to her. And it's it's quite interesting, I think, to think about. Talitha also actually touches on bullying in the fan community, <laughs> which, you know, I have been feeling has felt close to home for reasons we just discussed a few minutes ago. And some of the, you know, bullying that she literally got from fans who felt that she had some kind of like big influence on Michael and some really quite unfair treatment she received. So just looking at, you know, my perspective from this past year in particular, it's quite interesting to hear her insights on that as well. So I will stop there because we will be talking to Talitha in a future episode and we're going to dig into all this stuff much more. But I, I do highly recommend reading this book. It was a really interesting and pleasant surprise to me. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to finish reading it. Um, I read through a good part of the first portion and the other bits and pieces. But um, I remember when it uh, came out, I was very interested. I was I was pretty interested off the off the rip because I was like, okay, this is a fan perspective. And um, I remember on Twitter, some people were like, uh oh, it's Shayna Mandigal point two. But, um, <laughs> but um, uh, it actually wasn't that. It actually wasn't that at all. She doesn't try to make this seem like a love story per se. I mean, I, I get the title of fairy tale. I mean, okay, yeah, it kind of sounds like it's going to go in a Shana direction. But no, um, it was very interesting. It was like it was like she lived exactly what I wish I could have lived through. You know, she's. I mean, it's awesome. It's hard, but it's it's rewarding at the same time because I mean, she's going 
you know, city to city on history tour and she's getting almost VIP treatment because she's starting to be recognized. And she's, you know, she paints very vividly, as you guys have said, how she got closer, closer to Michael. And, you know, I thought that was really interesting. But I mean, there's also a lot of, you know, cool extra details about how they were able to talk to him about this is it and some of his shows and, you know, how he seemed, you know, from the offset, pretty excited about it. But I mean, there was there was one passage that I remember that was very interesting about they were like, oh, I'm watching the Royal Brunei concert. And they're like, do you remember? He's like, actually, no, I don't. What did I do? I'm like, huh? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, it's, like, it's amazing. It's crazy because, I mean, as amazing as he was to us, to him, it's just any other thing. And so that's that's the human part of him showing through again. And that was something that I thought was very valuable. It, it's those types of stories that make this you know, the book very valuable. But of course, it's also really cool as a fan, you know, seeing what other fans were able to do. I mean, of course, I didn't become a fan until about 2006. I never really got a chance to get close to Michael Jackson. But, you know, this kind of it kind of took me there and showed me what it would have been like had I got a chance to. And so for that reason, I think I really think more fans should read it, should give it a chance. But of course, I get how it seems from the outside. But I think she did a great job. I think she did him justice. I don't think she shared anything that was, you know, for, or at least from what I've read, I don't think she shared things that were too personal, things that he wouldn't like being out there. But I mean, it, it also, you know, there's that incredibly strange relationship that people from the outside looking in can't understand between Michael and his fans and how much he genuinely cared for the fans and, you know, how he actually got to know a lot of them. I mean, you, you kind of see it in the bodyguard book where he would say, you know, oh, I know this guy from Germany and this guy followed me from, you know, um, Spain or whatever. Or I saw this guy when I was still touring with the Jacksons, you know. And so this is really our first real in detail, firsthand account from a fan, just how that relationship really was. I mean, obviously, it was still a Michael and fan relationship because he would still they would still have to meet him at places that he was, you know, going, whether it's his doctor's office or uh, rehearsal or things like that, or they just crowd outside of his house. I I enjoyed what I read so far. I just I just haven't had had a real chance to just sit down with it because it's it's a lot a lot of details, way way more detailed than you would expect. But I think it's I think she did a great thing. Yeah, I ended up spending several weekends with it. No, it's really good. There's stuff I want to actually go back and revisit. And just the fact that she really, I mean, I feel like there's so much kind of mystery around those final weeks of his life. And she was there. I mean, she saw him, you know, in the last, his last 24 hours. So there's some pretty interesting insights with that and his his state of being and her feelings about, you know, what really happened at the end. Anyway, yeah, I definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, it's for me, you know, it's those years are so weird. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about those years because mm-hmm. I remember, like I said, I became a fan of Michael Jackson. I was in like the fifth grade. It was 2006. It was right after the trial. It was not cool at all to be a Michael Jackson fan. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I remember, like I said, I, I've told the story, but um, I saw the black or white video and from there. I wanted to find out everything I possibly could about him. And so after I learned everything about, well, as much as I possibly could about his career up to this point, almost every day I was on the computer trying to figure out, okay, is there any new news on Michael Jackson? And so, and usually unless he'd been spotted, you know, going shopping or something, there really wasn't a lot of news. And so I used to just wonder almost every day, I was like, what is Michael doing these days? 
So this, you know, gives me a chance to kind of see from another perspective. I mean, I got my first glance with the bodyguard book, but um, this gives me another perspective at least. So for a while, I'll be trying to piece those years together as well. I think we all will, really. I think it's going to take a long time before we get true clarity, if ever. So moving on, we do have a second book that's also out with a similar title. This one is Eileen Madala, and it's The King of Pop and I, <laughs> as opposed to Michael Jackson and Me. This one is The King of Pop and I, a Filipino teacher's travel memoir with Michael Jackson and his children. And Eileen was the traveling homeschool teacher of Michael Jackson's kids from 2005 to 2008. And they traveled, of course, all around the world during this time. Um, she lives in the Philippines these days. And this is her story of that of those years. Um, Jamin and I both suck and we have not read this yet. <laughs> um, but I plan to it's my next read. And I've been hearing really good things about it online as well. So I'm really curious about her insights. Ricky, did you get a chance to start this one yet? Uh, unfortunately, no, I did not. I Oh, we all failed. Yes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, but that's on our reading list. I do want to give a little shout out to the MJ Book Club over on Facebook. They are, of course, specifically focused on Michael Jackson books and have been doing a lot of interviews with authors as well. And I believe they've been doing some videos um, and chit chat around both of these books. So highly recommend checking them out if you have not yet. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading this one, uh, mainly because I have been aware of Eileen for many, many years. When we started A Truth Untold and started looking into the Casio situation and the fraud that took place that resulted in the, the Michael album, Eileen's name was always coming up. And we um and and uh, I've tried to reach out to her before actually I think many years ago but she was the the children's teacher during that whole period of time when Michael was a bit of a vagrant traveling <laughs> all around the world and I'm fairly sure she stayed I mean I haven't read the book and it's going to be in there I can't wait to read this bit but I'm pretty sure she stayed in a hotel. Uh, or, or a house or something nearby the Casio place. Uh, she was educating the children during that whole time. So I think, um, you know, what you guys touched on earlier about this whole period, this last few years of Michael's life, it is really mysterious. And again, I just think we're so lucky to have not only the Bodyguards book, Remember the Time, but now Talitha's book and this book. And, 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 and like you said, Ricky, all from different perspectives on this time period. And people that knew Michael and fans and everybody's doing a really good job trying to piece this time period together that we can learn about. And I'm still badgering um, Charlie. I think it would be incredible if Charlie uh, could write a book as well on this last few-year period of Michael's life, taking into account all the testimony from the different court trials from Murray and AEG trials. But, um, yeah, still a lot to learn. Sadly, you know, it's, it's just so marred in how inactive he was. And all the stories that came out, you know, immediately after he passed away, that that's all the errors generally, well, in a general sense associated with. And of course, what could have been with This Is It. And I mean, but at the same time, before that, before there's just after the, there's, it just seems like Michael's at that point, it's like the trial and then this is it. That everything in between, unless, you know, you were me and you were extremely excited when Thriller 25 came out, it, it just seems like that's more or less what we have. Plus, of course, his first public appearances with the World Music Awards and um, the MTV Awards in Japan. I mean, 
we just don't have much from that. And so these insights are, you know, helping us piece that together. I mean, it's it's so marred and, you know, people saying, okay, this is when he was struggling with painkillers and things like that. And it seems like that's all that era is reduced to. I'm glad we're starting to really see the light. I mean, later is better than never, I'll say. Yeah, I remember being a fan during that time period, and, and I have a different perspective on it now than I did then. But at the time, I remember just being very frustrated, like, oh, so many other fans who have been fans for 10 plus years have been able to experience, you know, the history era, the dangerous era, and all these amazing things. And now I'm a fan, and I want that too. And why is Michael not doing anything? And what's with the wheelchairs and the Zorro masks and the post-it notes? And what is going on? But then now I look back on it, and I kind of think, well, Michael had been performing really since he was a little kid, starting in shopping centers and Gary, and then, you know, performed all the way and recorded all the way through his life. He never stopped working until really the trial. And to me, everything post-trial, I kind of put it in my head now as like his chance to just step back and be a dad and try to heal and so I'm I'm very forgiving to <laughs> to Michael now, uh, and his chance to be a, a a dad compared to what I was at the time. I was very frustrated then. <laughs> I'm really glad you say that because you know that's something people forget. There are so many people who believe Michael Michael's career started at Off the Wall. No, he had been performing an entire decade before Off the Wall even came out. That was just. Mm-hmm. the beginning of his breakthrough into the mainstream. And so, you know, his celebrity, you know, his commercial viability got so big that, I mean, he didn't have to put out an album every year, every other year, like he was doing with the Jacksons and the Jackson Five. He could really take time, you know, put quality into his work. And, you know, that's what resulted in, you know, these albums that became the best-selling albums of all time, five of the best-selling albums of all time, off the wall, Thriller, Bad, Dangerous, and History. And of course, you know, to a lesser extent, invincible. But I mean, that's what allowed him to really excel was having that time in that space. But at the same time, he was also so busy all the time. There's no way he could have gotten albums out at the frantic pace that he did before. It's important that people remember that, that this is a man who's been performing since he was five years old. He's in his late 40s now. I mean, he needs to have a chance to try to enjoy his life because, I mean, it doesn't end at the albums. There's the tours, the appearances, the music videos, the business meetings. I mean, Michael Jackson was a real commercial machine. It was never stopping. They were always trying to get him to do something. I mean, it, that was really his time. And that's the Bodyguard book really put that into perspective for me. Like he was enjoying himself just being a father. He's like, you know, this is my time now. I can still do some things every now and then, but you know, this is really my time to just enjoy my life. I've been living for, you know, the medium forever now. Now it's time for Michael Jackson to just be Michael Jackson. Lord knows he earned it. He earned it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Truly. I mean, I think about those pre, pre-Motown pre years. Like, in a way, I mean, he never stopped working hard. And, and I don't mean to belittle how hard he worked after Motown. But during those years, he had a whole machine set up around him of people that were designing costumes for him and filming him and recording him and studios and engineers and all of that in the pre Motown years, that was the Jackson family doing that all on their own. That was Catherine designing their costumes, sewing them, the sleepless nights of traveling on, you know, to different venues and rehearsal after rehearsal and just nonstop talent shows. And that, that's the grind right there for me when they did it all themselves, they earned that spot at Motown. 
So you guys, I love this chat. Such good points and so many compelling ideas. So just so listeners know, we also will be doing something with Eileen down the road. So please stay tuned for that. And Ricky, I'd love if you could jump in and take the next topic here. Okay. Let's say The weekend he released a video for his new song, Save Your Tears, recently. And Jamin and I actually were talking about it on Twitter. We were wondering, is it a direct reference to Michael Jackson, knowing that The weekend is heavily influenced by Michael Jackson? And for those of you who don't know The weekend who aren't very familiar with his work, he is a rhythm and blues artist, now pop artist, who recently took the spotlight at the Super Bowl this year. He gave a very interesting performance. And he has hits such as The Hills, Can't Feel My Face, Earned It, and most recently, Blinding Lights, Heartless, and After Hours. His new video, Save Your Tears, he he appears in what seems to be a very large church surrounded by people masked, and his face is very deformed, obviously very worked upon, lots of plastic surgery apparent on his face. And that's this has been an evolving narrative. In his one of his previous videos, he emerged in complete bandages, which you could see at the Super Bowl. All of his dancers had bandages. And after this video, he has now revealed a, a completely new face to the world. And so we were wondering, how, it seemed to be some type of comment on celebrity. And so knowing that Michael Jackson was such a heavy influence on him, in his own words, he even said that Dirty Diana was the song that made him feel like he could sing. And the Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is where he found his falsetto. We were wondering, is this a very direct reference to Michael Jackson, or is this just a general commentary on celebrity in the medium? And so you look at the video. He's performing. He's energetic. And his crowd seems to be dead. It's like they're not even acknowledging that he's there. They're just kind of there. They seem to be not really into it. But there's one person who seems to see him. He brings her on stage. She seems to see him and he reveals to her a truer version of himself. He shows her his pain. He puts a gun to his head. He's like, hey, this is what I'm really going through. This isn't as glamorous as it looks. But he tends to put a lot of demonic, hellish visuals into his videos. If you go back to the hills, it seems like he meets with the devil after a grisly car crash, at which the other characters in his video seem to blame him. And so this takes it to another level. He's in a, he seems to be in a, performing in a church. But we wonder, how influenced by Michael was this? Jamie, do you have any thoughts? Well, when I watched it for the first time, I'm not going to lie. I, I mean, I followed The weekend's career to varying extents, depending on the album coming out uh, fairly closely, more familiar with his really early EPs, uh, kind of before everybody knew who he was. But when this song came out and this video, I immediately thought of Michael Jackson. And whether it was the sequined jacket or whatever, I think it was I think it was the surgery element that made me think, yep, yeah, this is some kind of commentary on Michael. I think it was the combination of the sequin jacket, you know, him being a solo R&B performer, but then in the video, but then also the the plastic surgery or the overabundance of plastic surgery, I could say, because when you watch it, you really think, wow, this person has gone really far with with what they're doing with their face. It really made me think about a parallel with Michael, and, and, and I felt really sorry for the person in that video, whether he's, 
I doubt he's portraying himself, but the character in that video, I felt very, very sorry for because, like, I mean, the, the performers appearing really lonely, you know, like they're in this really lonely spot where they've overcompensated or whatever through plastic surgery and their audience is really not acknowledging them at all and they just kind of seem to be some kind of washed up version of what they used to be. And, you know, this might be a little bit of an unpopular opinion with some Michael Jackson fans, but I think, you know, at least the Michael fans I talk to would probably agree that Michael was not in, in at least, you know, in those last 10 years of his life, in the performances at 30th anniversary concert and, and the, you know, the danger, the two, the dangerous performances that he did in 2002 and then, and beyond that, he wasn't really, I'm not going to say he wasn't the same Michael, but he definitely, you know, he was dealing with a lot during those years and, and he was, his heart, I don't know whether, yeah, I, I don't think his heart was in it the same way that it was before. Even in the history era, people talk about health reasons being a lot of the reason why the history show isn't up to the same standard, I guess, as the previous shows. But it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, like like an artist who had declined over time in terms of what they were offering in their live performance and how sad that was. And then it made me think of all the reasons why like it was like that for Michael. And yeah, then there's the plastic surgery. And and I don't know. This is tough because there's fans all the time that put pictures on on social media of like comparison images of Michael when he was like 10 <laughs> and then like when he was like 50 uh, side by side and they happen to get it at exactly the right angle which which you can see similar features and it's like well he didn't really change much at all. But I think I don't know the truth the truth of the matter is that Michael did, you know, he did change himself a lot over the years. And you can go into the psychology of that and the reasons for that, but um, they do address that on the latest uh, podcast episode of um, The Detail, The Detail's latest episode where MJ Fangirl and, and the others are talking about it. And and for me, you know, there's, some fans talk about health issues, the Pepsi burn, the lupus and all of that kind of thing being perhaps a reason for it. But for me, I, I think those last 10 years of Michael's life are, are quite sad. And um, yeah, I don't know if I'm getting my point across very well, but <laughs> that they elicited a lot of those emotions when I watched the video. Yeah, it definitely is powerful and interesting. I, I personally, I mean, we know that the weekend has been referenced MJ in a lot of his work. So I think there certainly is um, some connection there. He also, I think, does some kind of James Brown dance moves too in that video. Um but I, yeah, I think ultimately, I mean, it feels really sad to me and feels more kind of like a general comment um, on celebrity for all the reasons you guys have have mentioned. Um, I don't know, man. It's really depressing. <laughs> it is. It's a depressing video. I watched yeah. it. Like, I like the song. I love the bass line. I like, I really like the song. But when I see the video, it puts me in this headspace that is just really, really sad because... yeah. You know, here's this person that obviously at some point was great who has just sort of ended up being a bit of a shadow of themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even, yeah, his dancing is like pretty half-hearted. He does like a few little moves. I mean, not that The weekend is known as a dancer anyway, but, but still it all plays into that. A lot of the story takes place through, you know, his character and the character that he brings on stage. But I also feel like there he leaves a lot in the visuals of the audience, how the audience is so ominous, so 
lack of you know lack of lack of a better word they're just so not into his performance it's like okay whatever these guys are his just here i don't know when you were talking about it i started thinking about you know just hollywood how they're just like okay whatever and i mean the setting as well i mean i feel like the setting had to have some you know relevance to it i feel like i mean it's in a church he's surrounded by all these demonic people and that's why it made me think of hollywood all the parasites all the people who you know you know are rather greedy i don't know you like you said is a performer who has seen better days i mean is this him not in his death place but like on the brink of completely mm-hmm. losing himself I don't know if this sounds completely insane. It probably does. But for some reason, this video actually makes me think of the Smooth Criminal video a lot, except like a very, very sad, depleted version of it. Because there's all these people Mm. wearing fancy outfits, right? But in this case, in Smooth Criminal, they're all paying, you know, such... Well, not at first, but such close attention to him, you know, once he's in there and he's like, flip the coin and, you know, he kind of the music turns on. In this case, they're not paying attention to him at all. And then there's also, I mean, the gun to me almost kind of references, I may be just completely making this up in my head, but <laughs> kind of references the smooth criminal where he shoots, you know, the bad guy. In this case, he's putting the gun to his own head. I don't know. And the woman is like standing right there looking at him. Um <laughs> I kept thinking about Smooth Criminal for some reason as I was watching this video. Um, I don't know. Does that sound completely insane to you guys? No, I I think it's a different interpretation of it. Certainly. I just think, um, I feel like it, I feel like it was meant to be more of a reflection of the character rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, like, whereas, like you said, you know, Smooth Criminal, I mean, everybody, like he goes into this club, everybody's looking at him. Everybody's like, who is this guy? Like, he obviously has this charisma, this bouncing his step. I mean, he seems comfortable around all these potentially hostile people. Whereas in this, this guy, he he has he doesn't have any poker face. He's kind of letting it all out there. He's like, "Look, I'm in pain. I need to, I need to get this over with." I mean, to me, that was that was the gun. That was what the gun symbolized to me. He's like, "Hey, there's nobody else I can trust with this. Can you please take me out of here?" Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like it seems like the the cult of celebrity has caught up with him. He's over fame. He's like, I've seen better. I've seen my best days. They're long gone. There's no way I'm ever going to get it back. Mm-hmm. I'm done. And it seems yeah. like, you know, that's. I feel like that was kind of the significance of the setting itself, seemingly in like a church, you know, like send me up. At least just on your smooth criminal observation, I was just thinking about another video that kind of reminds me of this weekend video as well that Michael did and that's the incomplete one more chance video and uh, it's it's a real shame that that video wasn't quite completed actually because I think Michael was arrested soon after he started filming that and I think they got the sort of the wide shots and everything done and unfortunately on the second day of filming they were meant to do the close-up shots of Michael, but they, they weren't able to do that because of his arrest. So the reason it kind of reminds me of it is because both he and The Weeknd are performing in the video to an audience. But like we've already just said, with The Weeknd performing in a church to a crowd of people, and, and he's on, on stage and and uh, the crowd are watching him, but they seem completely disinterested. Whereas it's kind of the opposite with Michael. It's the exact reverse. I mean, he's in pain and, and sad in, in the performance, just like The weekend is in One More Chance. But 
in Michael's case, he's the whole thing's flipped. It's reversed. Michael is where the audience should be. So there's tables and chairs and a stage in front of it. And Michael is kind of on these tables and chairs performing while the entire crowd, the audience are actually on the stage watching him. And I think that's a really interesting kind of flip. And unlike the weekend's video where the audience is being completely apathetic in the Michael video, the whole crowd of people that are on stage, they're really into what Michael's doing. And they're kind of like watching him no matter where he is. He's still performing in entertainment for them. And of course, then there's the interesting comparison of the appearance of the artists. The weekend obviously intentionally was portraying himself as looking like somebody who'd had a lot of surgery, etc. But in the case of the One More Chance video, obviously uh, completely unintentional. That was just how Michael looked at that time. He wasn't looking great in that video. And for me personally, I kind of think with all that wig and everything, it was probably the worst he was looking in his whole uh, career. And actually, I think Michael started to look a lot better Uh, by the end of the 2000s when he got to the This Is It era. I definitely think there are some parallels to dig into. And this year in particular is a important one in the story of uh, Michael's posthumous reality because it's been 20 years now since 2001, which is arguably the maybe, I don't know if it's too far to say, but probably the lowest point in Michael's performing career. 30th anniversary was such a divisive performance uh, when people talk about it retrospectively. There are some things to enjoy about it, but there are, you know, it it is not Michael's greatest moment, especially when you learn what was happening uh, just prior to those performances um, with his substance abuse. And then um, the Invincible album, which again is, is probably the most divisive, critically panned album of his entire career. And it's the 20th anniversary of this era. So to me, this video, if we were to compare it to any era, for me, it's probably most comparable to late 2001. And and Michael wasn't looking his best. He wasn't performing his best. He wasn't acting his best. Uh, so as we go throughout this year and especially get to the second half of our season and, and do roundtables on Invincible and 30th anniversary, just be ready because we are going to be talking about some of those lower points. And that doesn't mean that we're bashing on Michael or anything like that. We totally 100% recognize he's the greatest performer that ever lived and reached heights during, you know, especially the 80s that no other performer has reached or probably will ever reach. But, you know, in at the end of his career, there, there are other, other um, you know, there are things we have to talk about there too. So when we look at the whole Michael Jackson... So we will uh, dig into that a little bit later in the year. Now, in terms of the the video uh, and and the look, the 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 glittery red jacket and that whole weekend persona, we saw that again uh, recently at the Super Bowl. And I'd love to know, Ricky, what your thoughts were when you saw the weekend perform at the Super Bowl, especially when thinking back on Michael's own Super Bowl performance. Well, I have to say, I didn't enjoy it very much, honestly, but. I don't know what I was expecting to be sure. Like, it's the Super Bowl; they're gonna hype it up. But I mean, I saw the weekend in the, in, in Atlanta in uh, 2015. You know, I enjoyed the show because I enjoyed the music. I mean, but obviously, as a performer, he's just kind of there. He's not. A, he's obviously not a dancer. He's not a showman. 
you know, he tries to hype the crowd up, but I mean, other than that, you're not going to get a whole lot from him on a stage. And so for the Super Bowl, I was like, what, what is he going to do? I mean, I know he has the biggest song of the year, biggest, probably biggest album of last year, but it's like, I mean, what, what are you going to bring to the Super Bowl? I mean, he had some really cool concepts. I mean, the choir I thought was really awesome and the stage, how he connected it, you know, to go around the field. I thought that was pretty cool. And, uh, and there were some pretty obvious Michael references, but overall, I mean, I just feel like, I just feel like anybody could have done that. I mean, you know what I mean? Because it's the Super Bowl. I mean, of, of course, it's going to be a giant spectacle because it's the Super Bowl. But at the same time, what makes the Super Bowl halftime show or what made it so special is what, you know, each performer brings to the table. And as a performer, you know, he just doesn't bring a whole lot other than vocals. But I just felt like he was just staring into the camera the entire time and letting the show do the show for him. I can't remember how, but. It was supposed to be tied into his, you know, this narrative he's been building since he's uh, been making videos for the After Hours era. But yeah, for the Super Bowl, well, I, t I tell you what, for the weekend, that was a pretty good performance. For the Super Bowl, it really wasn't up to par, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, uh, this conversation is going to be continuing on Twitter, I can tell. Uh, when we... <laughs> When we look back at Michael's performance, though, and there's a lot of Michael Jackson fans I've seen saying things online like, oh, Michael Jackson was a thousand times better than The Weeknd's and The Weeknd's was not great compared to Michael's and all of that. And then with Prince being held up as, you know, the the holy grail, really, of Super Bowl performances. I mean, I'm going to broach a topic here uh, that, you know, can often be quite controversial, but... I mean, the weekend we, we're saying he he wasn't really that interesting to watch, but he's saying that whole thing live, start to finish. That was real artistry we were seeing there. He was singing live. When we look back at Michael's, there I think the only live vocals there was when he was speaking uh, before heal heal the world in a in a voice that's like, <laughs> that was like. <laughs> I don't know how many <laughs> octaves lower than his actual singing voice from the album version that came later, but I don't know. How do you stack that up against each other? I don't really stack that against each other. Um, I've never really shared this. I, I say Michael really set the standard for the Super Bowl mm -hmm. because he, you know, what he brings to a stage, he's just explosive. He's going to give you energy and he's a showman, even if he's not singing. And of course, he has that very natural dance talent to back him up. But at the same time, I mean, I don't really compare it to most Super Bowl performances because when Michael Jackson did the Super Bowl, he didn't think about the Super Bowl performance the way the Super Bowl performance is considered now. He didn't think, you know, oh, I have to put on an amazing show. This is a great opportunity for me, but do I really have to put that much into it well i'm not i'm not saying he didn't take it serious i'm not saying that he didn't try to prepare something special but at the same time he didn't think of it on the level that it is thought of now but i don't really put the weekend's performance against michael's really because to me there's just no comparison because they bring completely different things to the stage the super bowl really starts to come into itself really probably in the 2000s more or less you got you know janet jackson and jt you got prince beyonce well that's later but Prince Beyonce and, you know, Bruno Mars, people like that who put on real spectacles. I don't know. I, it, it's, it's unfair for you to ask me that because to me, Michael doing, <laughs> Michael doing drinking orange juice is more entertaining than just about anybody to me, to be honest with you. But um, it's, it's hard because I, don't, I can't consider this a really top tier Super Bowl performance because, I mean, yeah, he did it live, but I don't know. I just, it just felt like I was just there. 
I feel like Michaels was a standard setter, but it doesn't really, and I feel like it gets credit for that because it set the standard. But compared to the others, I mean, technologically and, you know, how much effort was actually put into it. I mean, the Heal the World thing was really awesome. I mean, how many people really just got the entire crowd involved? How many people could really pull that off with, you know, something like Heal the World at the same time? So that I have to give him credit for that. I don't really compare them. I'm about to say, I mean, when you look at the standard, I think of Prince. I think of what Beyonce and Bruno Mars did. I think of um, I think of Beyonce solo one, as a matter of fact. And so compared to those, I think The Weeknd doesn't want to have that conversation, to be honest with you. But like <laughs> I said, for what for what it was, for what he brings to the table, like I said, it was a good performance for him. I, I will give it that. It's just when you talk about the Super Bowl. No, I would have had to pass on that one. I was more optimistic than both of you. I, but I think it's because my <laughs> bar during COVID is so low that I was like amazed that there even could be a Super Bowl performance at all, and I was amazed that there could be a lot of dancers. I was assuming you know he'd be able to buy himself in the grass, very distant from everyone. But um, I don't know. But I, I was watching it with my mom and sister, and we were, and kind of I guess maybe comparing it to Michael Jackson a little bit. I mean, we were really impressed with just how great his voice sounded and that kind of kept us engaged, but it certainly did, I think, lack the actual entertainer element, but I don't know. I enjoyed it. And that weird like room he was in um, that, you know, everybody's using as a GIF now or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, you're one um, of those people. You say GIF. You say, what do you uh, say? GIF? GIF. Oh, <laughs> GIF. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna let her pass with that, but you you called it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we're gonna have to have a meeting after the after the episode. I think. <laughs> Ricky, how do you say it? Oh, I say gif. You say gif? Yeah, it's, oh, it's gif. gif. I'll send you a link to the whole debate controversy thing. It's it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> it's always a thing, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah so so i'm kind of with ricky on it like i i watched it and was very underwhelmed i mean i was impressed by his live vocals but it definitely was lacking the um showman entertainment value that so many others have brought to the table before the weekend including michael uh and prince and it was a shame really because i do hold him in high regard as a songwriter and a singer and yeah, it's it's funny. Like it's it's kind of like the the reason I asked the comparison question is because it's kind of like the the sort of polar opposites of each other. The Michael and the Weekend performance. Like the the Michael one is is just pure dancing and showmanship, and obviously is is mimed. But the Weekend one is the exact opposite. It's like pure awesome live vocals, but like hardly any showmanship. <laughs> so it's kind of like they're they're polar opposites of each other. Yeah, but I, I really like your point, Ricky, about how Michael may not have even really been he, – he obviously put a lot of stock into it being a big deal for him, but he didn't know it was going to turn into, you know, this big yearly extravaganza where everyone's trying to top each other. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, that's why, you know, one of the things – well, I'm not sure how true this is, but they said, you know, he wanted to do another Super Bowl halftime show just to, you know, you know beat his – original one so i think that would have been cool but you know i do want to say what i did enjoy about it other than the choir i enjoyed um the house of balloons reference i don't know if you caught that when he was walking onto the field i thought that was really cool 
and when um blinding lights comes on and all the dancers just kind of like riot across the field i thought that was a really cool moment and but yeah i do have to give him credit for his live vocals um i will say i i have this argument all the time when people try to compare the weekend to michael jackson the weekend is in no way comparable to michael jackson as a vocalist i think mm-hmm. as a vocalist he's good he has a unique voice but he's not that great he's good not that great so I, like I said, I give him credit for being able to do the entire show live. And I think what for what he you know brings to the table, he did great. He was at the top of his game in that regard. I just his vocals don't do it that much for me. Beyond really his falsetto, his falsetto to me is immaculate. If he could sing an entire song of falsetto, I would be all over that. But his chest voice is just a little iffy to me. I always tell people this when they compare The Weeknd to Michael Jackson. I say, well, check this out. Compare the last verse of both their versions of Dirty Diana. Put them side by side. Listen to them back to back and see if you still can compare The Weeknd to Michael Jackson. <laughs> right. That is that is my go-to. Yeah, there's really, there's no comparison. <laughs> yeah. But let me, let me stop. I, I think I've bashed him enough today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I look forward to the Twitter replies to this episode. Um, I might have to deactivate for a while. <laughs> well, you had a bit of a forced deactivation a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was insane. I still never found out what that was for. I think it was a Beyonce fan talking about Michael. Oh, he said something about Michael not comparing to Beyonce. And I said, um, I can't remember what I said. I just know I used Negro. And I got right. banned for seven days for that. He he said something about he said something about man I'm not about to do the Twitter back and forth with you I'll beat your ass in real life I'm like bro what <laughs> what it's just a Twitter opinion but yeah I don't know it was a weird situation yeah and I I was wondering um it it's got me thinking about whether a person made that decision or like an algorithm or how that whole thing happens on Twitter I'm not sure I don't know I feel like I've noticed that a lot of you know. I don't know. It it seems like it's more likely for us to us to get flagged for saying it than you know a white person is get, to get flagged for saying it. I, I don't know. I've noticed that a lot of people get suspended for saying similar things to that, but there are people who say all types of homophobic or ableist or racist or you know other types of terrible slurs, and they just seem to get away with it. I don't know. I don't know if yeah. it's like their first report or if it's their second and they're just, you know, they have, you know, credibility or, you know, credit with Twitter, but I don't know. It, it seems to affect a lot of us in the MJ fan community. A lot of us black MJ stands a lot more disproportionately, but I'm not trying to start a conspiracy about his Twitter against black people. Well, no, I think it's an interesting point because I've seen a lot of, I mean, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, really horrible things said and then nothing nothing happened to those people that say them, you know, racial slurs included and ableist slurs and everything like you just said. But, yeah, I've, sexist stuff and, and you just see those people kind of skate by. But when, yeah, to hear that you were, you know, uh, banned pretty much instantly, that was, yeah, that's pretty shocking to me. And crazy enough, I didn't even say it hostily. I was just, you know, throwing it. I was just throwing it into the sentence. I didn't even say it, you know, aggressively or anything like that. And so it was just random to me. And I tried to appeal it, but it seemed like they weren't reviewing it. So I just said, forget it. I'll take my ban. 
<laughs> I think it was like 10 days or something like that, a week. <laughs> Seven days. Seven days. Right? Really? Yeah. Well, actually, it ended up being 10 days because I decided to forget the appeal like three days after I filed it. So, yeah, it did end up being about 10 days. Yeah, and then you had COVID during that time. And so that was really – that was scary for me because you said you had COVID on Twitter and then you went silent for like advantaged. a week. And I was like, oh, my God, is is Ricky okay? And then thank God you told me on DM you're all right. But that was really – I was freaking out. <laughs> yeah, thank you again for reaching out to me. Not not a lot of people really did. So I, I really do appreciate that. That was no, very – okay. That's all right. I just, I've always like, um, I don't follow a lot of people on my Twitter um, intentionally because I hate having like a clogged up feed of so much information, but you tweet a lot. So when, when you went silent for a few days, I thought, wow, something has happened here. So, (laughs) all right, let's, uh, let's talk about the Jacksons because um, I think we could all agree that the Jacksons era in the late seventies with um, their uh, self-titled album, Go On Places, Destiny, Triumph, that whole run of albums from the Gamble and Huff stuff to their self-produced material is really just an absolute artistic highlight of uh, Michael's whole legacy. I know that period, um, including Off the Wall and then and then in, including Thriller, is just the late 70s and early 80s is just for me Michael's... Um, you know, just a, a real peak of, of artistry. So I was really excited to see uh, in the news that uh, the Jackson's albums are being expanded and re-released. And my understanding is that they're they're now, some at least some of them are now out, uh, going places in Destiny with the live album uh, still to come, I think it is, on vinyl. Uh, we've got a link in the show notes where you can learn about that um, in Rolling Stone. They've got a piece on it and then... Um, you know, uh, ordering information and everything on Amazon. I was really excited. Um, at, I'll admit at first I was like, yeah, cool. We're going to get some demos and un- unreleased things on there. Um, and unfortunately it doesn't have that. It's just uh, a re-release with um, s- the seven inch single versions uh, of some of the songs on there as well to fill it out. But I still am excited because like I said, to me, it's really a highlight period of Michael's career. And then for people, to, new people that are coming to the table to hear this stuff for the first time, they're going to be able to get it in fresh packaging with with some of these uh, single tracks that, that were hard to get elsewhere. I'm not sure if the music has been remastered. It sounded pretty amazing to me anyway. Uh, when I when I when I play those albums, but nevertheless, they're they're coming out, and uh, for those collectors who love getting vinyl copies of things, there'll be great vinyl versions as well. I have already pre-ordered my vinyl Jackson's Live. I'm very excited about having a shiny new one. I have the old, <laughs> old vinyl, but there's nothing. I mean, the Jackson's Live, I think, is one of the best albums of all time, and there's nothing like playing the actual vinyl itself instead of the digital version it's just amazing it's a reason if you do not already own like a record player it is a reason to go out and buy a record player is to hear that particular album um in that particular format it's so good so i'm gonna have one that's not all dusty and and scratched so i'm excited about that (laughs) these releases even if they're not remastered i just think it's so great and shows how much energy it can infuse into the fandom just to even have these like you said kind of 
quote unquote repackaged, even if it's just digital um, for these three albums, just to have the Jackson's name out in the public discourse again, to feel kind of re-energized by it, to rediscover some of this music. And I think that's that's great. Um, I, I, I really hope that we continue to see more of it. It makes it fun and engaging. We can go back and kind of rediscover this work. Um, I hope that future releases will include things like demos and stuff. Maybe if these perform well enough, then we'll see that for any future releases. But I'm really excited about it. I did notice that they said that that is the um, just the first wave of New Jackson's releases. So I, I believe there's something else planned, or at least I hope so. Yeah, that's my understanding, too. This is, seems to be a whole a whole movement of stuff they're going to be doing. I think everybody's hoping for some release of Triumph. Personally, I'm hoping that there's some love for Destiny Tour as well. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. The second leg of the Destiny Tour, the whole Triumph Tour, the Victory Tour, that whole period is just so exciting because there's so much energy. If you watch the Motown to Off the Wall documentary by Spike Lee with that Triumph Tour footage, oh my God, Michael just had so much energy and a great band, really good band with horns, um, which I don't think Michael had on any other tour after that. So I, I just, I'm desperate for that, that kind of live footage to come out as well. And, you know, I, I also love the fact that there was so much variation between each show, like all the Triumph shows, they were mixing up costumes and wearing different things here and there from night to night. The great organic audience interaction and, oh man, there's so, many, so much untouched stuff from that era that's yet to come. You know, I feel like that is probably... One of the most, I mean, it obviously is one of the most underrated periods in uh, Michael Jackson's career. But, you know, we kind of look at the bad tour a lot as, you know, his peak. But, you know, he was a lot more free flowing in, you know, those Triumph, Destiny, Victory Tour years. You know, honestly, you look at the Toronto Victory Tour show on YouTube and he's just he's just up there having the time of his life. He's not I mean, he's still into the show. He's still, you know, you know you know, hitting his cues and things like that, but he's just up there having a great time. He's not, he's not thinking so much about the epicness of the show. He's really just having a great time up there. And it's, it's honestly a joy to watch. It's like, I have, I've been discovering a lot. Well, I've been trying to go back and look at a lot more of whatever footage we can get from those time periods. And he's just, he just seems to be up there having the time of his life. And it's, it's such an experience. You just feel like you're up there with him. It's, it's awesome. So it's like, that's the part that we're really missing. It's like, you look at the Prince estate and they, They'll drop anything at the drop of a dime. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be a giant release. Like I thought, the Purple Rain Syracuse release was an awesome idea, and I thought about it. It's like we don't have anything like that for Michael. I mean, they came out with the the live album for Wembley, but we don't have any anything beyond that and the Jacksons live. And I feel like there's so much that they could use. I feel like they could use Victory Tour. They could use the first leg of the Bad Tour. I mean, just let it be streamed. I mean, they could do the Destiny Tour. Even if we don't have um, the footage, they could even just put a concert on Spotify. And I think that will blow up, honestly. I mean, it's just, it's all so, you know, the quality is so poor compared to now that it. I feel like it puts off a lot of people from actually just sitting back and watching it. And I feel like that's going to bring an entirely new look on Michael Jackson to a lot more people because a lot of people, you know, they look for his performances and they want to see, you know, Billie Jean or Remember the Time and stuff like that. But those are the gems back there when he was, you know, first performing Rock With You and Don't Stop and still had, you know, songs like Blame It on the Boogie and Enjoy Yourself and Dancing Machine on the set list. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with you. It's it's Michael Jackson in his absolute purest form. And we'll see. I mean, I also really, really hope for some footage coming out. Cross our fingers. We'll see what happens. In addition to these releases of awesome Jackson's albums, we've also had a Chinese company called Pure Arts release a crazy expensive Michael Jackson figurine. Uh, and this little one-third scale statue, well, I shouldn't call it little, this one-third scale statue that the estate um, have been a part of uh, putting out features some pretty cool things like custom tailored clothing and it's a statue of Michael Jackson in the Smooth Criminal video. He's doing the lean on it. But the, there is a lot of detail, like the, the the base of the floor has this great brickwork and then timber and, like I said, the tailored clothes, synthetic hair, and it's got a really realistic kind of look and feel to the whole thing. There's like an LED light system in the jukebox, and it's very, very cool. But there's just one little thing wrong with it, in my opinion. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, but if you zoom in and you look at Michael Jackson's face in it, <laughs> I don't know who that guy is, but <laughs> it doesn't look like Michael Jackson. <laughs> it looks like a cranky old man. And I'm just thinking if you're spending that amount of money, like, and it's like thousands and thousands of dollars, I don't know. I kind of want it to look, I mean, I've seen, I follow Instagram accounts with, people who do waxwork stuff and make uh, figurines and statue of Michael Jackson that look just like him. And <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they did a good job on this one. You got, what do you guys think? So I'm in like a ongoing argument with my friend Constantinos about whether or not it looks like him. And we just like shoot photos back and forth at each other. <laughs> <laughs> of this statue, the, yeah, the clothing, the lean, the whole kind of idea of it, like you said, is super, super cool. I'm 100% for it. I mean, for me, it represents like my favorite moment of Michael. Um, but yeah, I think that jutted out jaw just is not him. And for the, again, for the price, it's not something I would personally buy, but hey, you know, if you can afford it, like more power to you, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I I completely understand that. I think, I don't know. I feel like it's a really cool concept. I feel like unless you're going to be looking at it really closely every day, I feel like you wouldn't mind too much. I feel like on a shelf or a collector's case, I feel like it would look pretty good. It's just that price is so steep. And I say, I actually, I entertained the idea of buying one. I went on there and I tried to see if they have like any payment plans available. And they're not too bad if you want the one without the jukebox. And there's another cool detail that I read from the description. It says there's like a hidden feature on the statue for like a Bluetooth speaker. So I was like, that actually sounds really cool too. Yeah. Yeah. If you go read the description on the website. Oh, there it is right there. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think it's a pretty cool starter. I'm very much into collectibles. It's as close as I get to Michael. So I very much love collectibles. So I think it's a great idea, great concept, but it definitely needs to be way more affordable for Michael Jackson fans. You know what I mean? And, you know, the estate says there's supposed to be more of them that are supposed to be more affordable. So I'm going to wait and see about those because fortunately we're still in a pre-order era for this smooth criminal statue yeah. so i'll keep my eye on it eye on it but imminently i'm not keen on buying it but i'm not gonna lie if i could come into it rather freely i think i'd love having it on my shelf i love your positivity 
<laughs> uh, you have to stay positive as a Michael Jackson fan in 2021. I tell you that. That that is true. That is very true. All right, Elise, do you want to zip through the next one with Timez? Yeah, yeah. Just a, a quick mention for you know hero of the MJ community, Tom Mesero. We all love him. Um, he is a featured guest on a legal podcast. It's called Hashing Out the Law with Arash uh, Hashemi. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And I we will have a link in the show notes on this. Um, I totally recommend checking it out uh, because you know with Tom Mesero, of course we hear a lot about the work he did with Michael. If you have not heard our MJ cast interview with him, please do be sure to check that out. It was a really great in-depth interview. But this particular podcast actually talks a lot about his history as a lawyer and the other aspects of his work in criminal defense and really is a great reminder of just the incredible work he's done, the pro bono work he's done in the South, um, a lot of other stuff. So totally check it out. It's great. It'll kind of round out your understanding of Tom Mesro. I have not heard this, but I really want to. So I'm not going to say anything about it. Ricky? Yeah. Same. Okay. All right. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Elise liked it. Go listen to it. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> All right. Well, um, next story is about Hamid Moslehi, who was such an important collaborator of Michael Jackson during the last uh, 15, 20 years of his life. Uh, Hamid was Michael Jackson's videographer and spent a lot of time with Michael capturing personal private moments, even, you know, being there at concerts and recording backstage behind the scenes things and and family moments and all of that kind of stuff. The reason that this story really piqued my interest is because apparently, according to John Ziegler, uh, Hamid is going to be coming out with a book and documentary at some point in the future. Now, Charlie, if you remember back to our episode in the second half of last season, I think the episode was called the new adventures of Charlie Thompson, he talked about meeting Hamid when he traveled to America and Hamid showed Charlie some of his private videos that he has, including rehearsal footage for 30th anniversary concert where Michael Jackson was singing Stranger in Moscow live with Jermaine Jackson on backing vocals, which just gave me complete goosebumps when I heard that that actually exists. So I'm really looking forward to this book and doco if they end up coming out. I hope the documentary does not suffer the same fate as the uh, final last photo shoots documentary by Craig Williams, which still is yet to come out, but we will see. This one's really exciting to me. That sounds really awesome. That's my first time I'm actually hearing about a stranger in Moscow with Jermaine, and I'm trying to imagine that, and I'm like, hmm? It's a thing. Charlie saw it. Apparently, Michael doesn't look his best in it. I think he's got, you know, the sort of tape stuff happening on his nose and that kind of thing. So Charlie said it may not be releasable in that Michael doesn't look very aspirational in it, but in terms of the vocals, apparently it's a great performance and Michael singing live and... Jermaine's there right with him. So I, I don't think it's on stage or anything like that. It sounded to me like it was in like a rehearsal studio with a band. That is the kind of thing that that I think fans would just just salivate for. <laughs> I don't care anything about a bandage. I would love to see that. That sounds amazing. But the photo book, also, photo book and documentary also sounds amazing. I mean, anything that I can take that's new of Michael, I will definitely take in these years. So if it comes through, that would be awesome. I agree. 
So as Michael Jackson fans, we always love to see what's going on with the Michael Jackson estate and what their mindset is and what they're thinking about for the future and future products and all of that kind of thing. And uh, well, Mr. Branker, the uh, co-executor of the estate, one of the co uh, yeah, one of the co-executors, the only one we ever really hear from, uh, did an interview recently. Uh, and you can check that interview out in the show notes. John Branker did this interview with the music business worldwide, which is fairly all-encompassing around his handling of the Michael Jackson estate uh, and and everything they've done. But unfortunately, again, what you would expect is is pretty much what's in here, a very one-sided interview that kind of just shows only the good things that he's done, not all of the things that uh, people criticize him for. Uh, including things like blocking the Jackson family members from doing tribute concerts and the fake songs that he refuses to remove from Michael's catalog. And uh, it is worth a read to just see, like, I guess, get an insight into how he views himself and the estate. But it did leave me pretty angry. He said things in there like he believes in standing up for principles and ideals, social justice. It's important for artists to take leadership roles in society and stand up for what's right. And that he'd like to see more of that, including entertainment professionals doing the same. And I found that quote to be very, very ironic because <laughs> that's exactly what many Michael Jackson fans feel he should do as well. Did you guys have a chance to read that interview? Yes, I did. And um, of course, I was hoping there was some type of new news. But of course, it's just John Branca being John Branca. He, of course, has to throw another shot at the Prince's state talking about, you know, they left their you know, prince left his estate to be through to a bank or whatever and i'm like okay unnecessary and it's like it's not like you've done amazing with what with michael jackson yeah it's 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 just unfortunate that you know between everything that you know they've done in the last few years that the main thing we can look at with pride really is bad 25 and escape i mean if you put it into perspective i just thought it was so ironic because it's like he has the nerve to to speak as though he's done such an amazing job with the Michael Jackson estate when he he and the Michael Jackson estate are completely out of touch with the fans. You know, they try to cater, they try to they try to present Michael Jackson's image as though he's still, you know, creating music. They feel like they have the right to go and remix his songs and try to make them updated and things like that. And to me, it just I, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean. The estate talks about, you know, their mission to preserve Michael's legacy long term and things like that. And, you know, I just feel Michael did all that work. What Michael left behind already is fine. You just need to, you know, I don't feel like you guys can enhance Michael's legacy. I mean, what Michael did is what Michael did. Things that he didn't feel were ready to be released to me don't affect his legacy if it gets out obviously he said it wasn't worthy of release just yet so if it comes out and people think it's terrible i mean whatever it's not like michael said this was ready to be shown to you so how can you really try to put that as part of his legacy of course if it's great then it's great but at the same time it's just like i don't know it's like they think too much of themselves in a way it's like yeah you guys are the michael jackson estate but you can't do much more than what he already has already done. It's like, just, just do things that the, you know, the fans are going to love. And I mean, to be honest with you, we'll love almost anything that's quality. At least that's how I feel. 
Yeah, I feel exactly the same way as you, Ricky, that I think you summed that up really well. I don't think you really can enhance Michael's legacy because it is set in stone already. It was set in stone when he passed away. What I would say is that I think it's their job to present his art in as best quality as possible, given the current times and technologies. Of course. So, you know, like if we're in the 4K era, then let's use 4K and not VHS. And on the note of um, whether things were ready to come out or not, again, I fully agree. I don't mind unreleased things coming out, especially if they're demos. And, and to be honest, even if they weren't ready for prime time, I'm still cool for that to come out because we can learn and understand how Michael worked as an artist. To me, it's all about how they're presented. If they're presented as demos, then everybody knows that. But if they're taking the demo vocals and getting them remixed by Timberland and putting them out, then that's when it's weird to me because it's kind of like, Let's present this as a finished product, but there's nothing on it to say it was a demo and that Michael had just worked on it for a few hours and left it. So, Well, touching on that a little bit, I mean, I, I think this interview really takes the angle of Branca as some hero who really swept in and saved Michael Jackson a bunch of times with the idea that everything he was doing was a money-making venture and that that's the ultimate to me this article is like that's the ultimate goal of all of it right and all the creative ways he's found to make money which sure you're dealing with a huge estate that becomes important but yeah what do you lose in the process and i think branca is the epitome of perhaps losing everything in terms of actually respecting the artist you are representing if i may say so it makes makes me think a little bit of the Britney documentary that just came out and you know what is what is the cost of just wringing someone out to dry as much as possible for every cent that they're possibly worth Frank is doing this has done the same thing for um, many many years to Michael Jackson Hmm. And the great irony of it is that he probably would have been able to generate much more money had he respected Michael in the process and his art yeah I think you're probably right it's interesting when you read this interview, there's very little talk about Michael as a person and his legacy and what, and, and respecting that personality and legacy and, and essence. And it's a lot about making money. I mean, I guess it is a music business worldwide interview. So I can kind of get that. But like you said, there's been a lot lost in this last 10 years of uh, Branker's tenure and there's no end in sight. But. Anyway, we keep powering on as we do. You know, going back to that remix and vocals thing, it's like that's one thing that makes me look at Escape really weirdly. It's like you have all these people that Michael may have worked with or may not have worked with on these remixes and some people who, you know, obviously wrote the song. But it's like I feel like the only one that was really done justice was like the title track, Escape, because, I mean, hey, Rodney Jerkins who Michael made that song with, he came in to finish it. So I feel like, hey, I mean, maybe he has a pretty good idea of what Michael wanted for the finished product or would want for the finished product because, hey, he was there and he knew Michael's expectations. He worked on an album with him. And there's these other people who Michael, you know, hey, like may have worked with or wanted to work with. I feel like, okay, I kind of get it. But at the same time, it's like they don't really know what Michael would have wanted. I mean, like the A Place With No Name remix, it's literally leave me alone's production and it was weird because when it first came out i was i was just so happy to have new michael jackson that i really didn't notice it but i was playing it with a friend and they were like wait is this leave me alone and i listened i was like wait a minute 
That's the exact same production of Leave Me Alone, but updated, obviously. Things like that. I even look at Escape with a little weird. I think the best part of it is putting out the songs the way Michael left them. Because to be honest with you, I don't listen to many of the remixes. I do like the Chicago one a bit, the Escape one a bit. But at the same time, I just feel like that's not really the estate's place. For me, it's sometimes it's borderline insulting that these people just, I mean, because Michael talked about that. He's like, I don't like that these people come in and they remix my music. He said that about Blood on the Dance Floor. To me, this is the same concept. And now he has no say in it. So to me, it's even worse. Not to hate on the Escape album. I just feel like that is not your job. Remixing, making his songs commercially viable for now. To me, that's just not your job. I don't know. That's just me. No, I agree. And if they are going to do that, don't foreground it. Make it a disc two and put the originals on disc one. If you're going to put the originals out, consult with the original producers. She Was Loving Me, which is now called Chicago, was originally She Was Loving Me. We know that because the person who wrote the song and produced it says that. So they come in and they change song titles. They The mix of She Was Loving Me that's on that album on disc two is terrible. The, the original writer and producer didn't even get consulted to finish his own mix. There's just things like that that really are so disrespectful. You know, it is, you can't, we can be grateful for getting new music and new products and, and things, but at the end of the day, it's just that treatment of Michael as an artist and that reverence for him that's really lacking. And I think that's what fans get upset about. I can definitely relate because I just, I, I see, I didn't even know that about Chicago. I mean, I'll, I knew it was originally titled as She Was Loving Me, but I mean, it's just, shouldn't it be common sense that, you know, obviously, if the original producers or writers are out there, why don't you consult them? I mean, I did read about that with Dr. Freeze with Blue Gangsta. He wasn't consulted for that. I'm like, how does that make any sense? I mean, he has some idea of what Michael would have wanted as the final product for that song. How does it make sense to say, oh, forget you. You were there. Hey, let's use Timbaland. I mean, Timbaland's great and all, but I mean, does did he ever work with Michael? Not that I know of. Some of the people that they refuse to work with, you might think about, you know, Michael Prince, uh, Corey Rooney, and these kind of producers. I don't think it's coincidence that they don't work with the people that are the most critical of them around their choices. They kind of try to, not to use a pun, you just mentioned Dr. Freeze, but they, they, I think they just kind of, they freeze these people out because they, they don't like to... They don't like to give opportunities to people that are highly critical of their decisions, I think. They know that these people will bring attention to the fact that Michael may or may not have been happy with this. and That hurts their brand, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, a good point. All right, Ricky and Elise, let's take our second and final break of the episode just to talk about the MJCast's shop, which people can access at themjcast.com slash shop. Well, we have got a bunch of great designs for people to check out at our shop. Of course, there's the classics like our awesome original MJCast Sunset logo and all of those great text-based designs like all the Jacksons' names in one place or all of Michael's solo albums and, and their titles in one place. Uh, but regardless, you can get all of these great designs on a heap of different products, including T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, travel mugs for coffee, phone cases prints and artworks and, and different tote bags and and I know Charlie he just recently got some notepads which he really likes of course all proceeds from any of our merch sales go to three areas 
to charity, but also show running costs and new equipment so we can make our shows sound even better for our listeners all over the world. So help promote the MJ Cast and Michael Jackson all at the same time. Head on over to themjcast.com slash shop, grab an item from our store, get it delivered, enjoy it, and uh, you know what? Why not even think about getting something delivered to a Michael Jackson fan friend as well if you want to give them a little gift. Share the love. All right, well, make sure you grab something from our shop, themjcast.com slash shop. Once it's delivered, take a photo. If you're wearing a cool T-shirt, send a pic of that through and we'll make sure to share photos on social media as well. Thank you to all of you out there who have gone to themjcast.com slash shop to support the MJ cast. It's deeply appreciated. All right, MJ Vibe put together some of MJ's chart data from 2020. It's um, a little bit incomplete. The article says they started tracking it about May 2020, but we still get a pretty good view of how Michael's songs uh, on Spotify and YouTube did for the year of 2020. You can see where Michael ranks among Spotify listeners, how well his songs have done, how well his albums have sold, and how many views he tends to get on YouTube. So it's a testament to how popular Michael Jackson continues to be in the modern world and how he is actually still very competitive with modern artists as far as streams and sales and views. So if you go to MJ Vibe, you can see Michael's YouTube views, his most viewed short films, his most listened to songs, where he ranks on Spotify compared to others, by country, great things like that. Personally, I tend to try to keep up with how well his songs are doing. If I see one of his songs, like Smooth Criminal is about to reach 300 million or Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is about to reach 200 million, I try to let people know. I think it's a great testament to just how Michael continues to appeal to old fans, new fans, casual fans, how his music is still viable, how his legacy has maintained through almost everything. I think that's I think it's very important to keep track of because in this age where people are trying to erase him, it's more important than ever to show that Michael Jackson is still one of the biggest superstars in the entire world. He still appeals to people. His music is still timeless to people. It still makes people feel good. It still brings people together. And he's still a great artist to discover for a lot of people. And so these types of chart compilations, I think, are really important. I'm glad to see people still put him out there and let him know. You see it for people like Mariah and Whitney who continue to break records as we go on. As a matter of fact, Michael broke another record this year for, well, last year for his um, charting by decade. He's now the first artist, the only artist to chart from the 1960s all the way up to the 2020s as a result of Santa Claus is coming to town, charting at number 40 or so on the Billboard chart in 2020 of this Christmas season. So I think that was really awesome. And I thought that was that was another huge boost to his legacy. I mean, this man is still breaking records after all these years. You guys have any thoughts? Well, I am curious. Actually, I have a question. I So I'm not, you guys, I'm not good at numbers and my eyes glaze over, but <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have too much commentary here. But I am curious, um, since you guys both, I think, kind of follow charts probably a little more than I do. So Michael sold over 100,000 pure copies of Thriller in the US in 2020 alone. I think that's so amazing. Now, by pure copies, does that, does that mean like the full album? Do you guys know? I, I think it just means the album itself. Yeah. So not okay. like a stream of it, but. Someone okay. actually hit okay. purchase either on iTunes or went to the shop and bought a copy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of those sales come from the vinyls because Thriller is consistently in the top 
selling vinyls chart as well. So I think that's a large bulk of it. And matter of fact, a lot of places that sell records, I mean, you're almost guaranteed to see off the wall, thriller or bad in those sections. I, I see them everywhere. I think a lot of it comes from that, but it, I think it is also takes into account CD sales as well, because I, I believe physical and digital sales are still separate unless they've merged that format. And I know streaming isn't accounted for unless the album hits 1.5 billion streams. So Thriller streams have counted towards its total sales, but I know bads haven't just yet. So that's another thing to take into account. Well, now that's really important information, I think, for fans. I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody who really like you, Elise, cares a whole heap about stats. And I used to when Michael was alive. I was the guy at the shops always uh, purchasing multiple copies of Number Ones and <laughs> making sure Number Ones was sitting in front of other albums around it. And <laughs> I, uh, I, I definitely was big into stats and charts when he was alive. Since he passed away, I kind of haven't been too much because, you know, like we said before, I, I personally kind of just feel like his legacy is sort of sealed and he topped everything when he was alive so i give props to people like ricky who talk about it online and mj vibe for doing these kind of articles but because i think it's great for those people who do care uh that there's so much information there to look at i do find interesting like where songs are stacked against each other in michael's catalog so i would not have guessed that in terms of when i go through this list on youtube i would never have guessed that smooth criminal and billy jean and they don't care about us were above thriller. I th- I would have thought the thriller video would have been the number one watched one, but uh, it's not. So that's cool to see that there's other videos in there that um in the mix too. And then uh, in terms of the streaming numbers, when we're looking at albums in particular, I would not have thought that a Michael Jackson posthumous album would have ranked higher than a studio album, but that has happened. Uh, when we're looking at his streaming numbers for Spotify, we can actually see the posthumous albums Escape and Michael. Escape is outperforming history, Escape being number five, history number six, and then the Michael album outperforming Invincible with Michael being number seven and, and Invincible being number eight. That does concern me again. I'll mention with those fake songs on the Michael album, it, it does concern me that uh, over 128 million people have <laughs> streamed those songs since May 27th. But anyway. It's like secondhand embarrassment just knowing that. Ugh. It is. It is. I, w- I will say, though, that um, Invincible in recent days has actually overtaken the Michael album. Oh, great. That's good. That gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> this is as of November, so it is a little bit outdated. Like, for example, I just know off the top of my head that Smooth Criminal is over 300 million. Beard has recently reached 500 million streams. Billie Jean is over 800 million streams. So I will say that his music is still climbing very steadily. I will, just so you know. How do those stream numbers compare to, like, say, a number one hit that comes out? Just say... I don't know, Ariana Grande or somebody released a number one hit tomorrow. What would the average stream numbers of that be compared to where Michael's at? Well, it's tough. I know that um, it always varies by the artist because you have to account for streams from YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify. I might say on Spotify, they could average like, 
you know, 100 million streams in a day or so, if it's like, say, Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift will, might might double that. You know what I'm saying? But I say I know it's like one sale is 1,500 streams, which is kind of insane to me. Yeah, Michael has a really steady flow. He gets like a, almost a million a day for Billie Jean, which is insane to me. But like the average number one song probably gets like 69 million streams, maybe has sold. I know Taylor Swift, she hit number one with about 300,000 albums sold, maybe like 100,000 pure. The rest came from streaming. So you you have to you have to get a huge streaming number just to get back returns like 300,000, you know, equivalent album sales. It's it's yeah. it's hard. Damien Shields is really good with this stuff. It's hard to do on the top of my head. Are you one of the these guys that like leaves a song on just streaming all the time? <laughs> No, <laughs> there's too many songs that I want to hear at any given point that I just I, I can't commit to that too often. I did it for yeah. Thriller this past Halloween season, but I, it's it's impossible for me to commit to that because I'll be letting it play. And next thing you know, I pick up my phone and I, I play some D'Angelo or I play some Prince. And yeah, there goes my plan. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm the same. I'm the same. I see these people on Twitter that are like, oh, you know, stream Invincible nonstop and and. I'm like, I just don't have time. I don't, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I can never commit to that. I, I listen to my music way too much. Yeah, yeah. And so for our last news item actually features our guest host today, Ricky Alexander. He has published a new essay on Medium, which we will have linked in the show notes, called What is Michael Jackson's Magnum Opus? And this is a really awesome little piece. I super enjoyed reading this. And Ricky, what I really do appreciate about you, which we talked about earlier, is that you're really great at starting discussions. Um, Mm -hmm. And here you give us these great little short pieces about each of Michael Jackson's solo albums, minus Invincible, I might add. Uh, (laughs) We can talk about that, about really kind of giving an identity, I think, to each of his albums in this lovely little compact way. And honestly, I read this and it made me, it made me think about each of his solo albums in a slightly new way and really kind of thought about each album in terms of how it actually did shape his life and career and what was possible because of that particular album. So this really does create kind of the fodder for discussion about, you know, which was his magnum opus. So I super enjoyed reading this. And Jamin, what did you think? Exactly the same. I absolutely loved it. I love the length of it. I could get through it, you know, in just, you know, five minutes or whatever. And it just really made me think about each album, very thought provoking, I love the, uh, you, you really summarize each album beautifully, I feel, and and I agreed with every point you made about each album. I love the high-res images. They The album covers just look beautiful, uh, so crisp. But I've got to ask, the, I didn't see any Invincible at the bottom of the list, and I've got to know why there's no Invincible. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Invincible fan. I love Invincible. I feel like it has some of his strongest tracks in um, his entire career. But I just feel like I had to look at for each album. The whole point was how does it like which one is the most important? And I feel like Invincible didn't make and didn't leave enough to his legacy to really be in argument with those other albums. It's like me arguing 
you know, Got to Be There is his magnum opus. And I'm not saying that Got to Be There isn't good or doesn't have good tracks. It's just obviously that doesn't, that wasn't Michael Jackson's most important moment. I did consider, you know, how that it did prove that Michael Jackson, you know, six years after his last studio album release, you know, he still has a large commercial stature in the industry, you know, very late in his career. 2001, it's the pop revival. So that's Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Janet's still on top. Beyonce's coming into her own with Destiny's Child. Usher is climbing. Eminem is up there. Yuck. So I, I thought that was important, but I felt like beyond that, it didn't really leave a unique mark on his legacy, like or at least comparable to the other way the other albums did. And so I decided to omit Invincible. But of course, it's still a very great album. Yeah, I think you explained that really well because all of those other projects, you you know, depending on, you know, who you are as a fan, you could argue that each of his albums is his most important. There's There's great arguments for each of those. So that's a good way to look at it. Exactly. And like, I just kept thinking about it. It's like, you'll have people, there's a lot of people who will swear up and down that history is the best album Michael Jackson ever, you know, released. And you'll have people who say it's off the wall. You'll have people who say it's thriller, it's dangerous, it's bad. I mean, it's anything. And I'm just like, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, decide which one is his magnum opus? And I have to think about it. I have to put it into terms and say, how do we decide what is most important to his legacy? And that's how I came to my own conclusion about what his magnum opus was. People look for so many different things in music. There are people who look for relatability or, you know, realness. And so for them, that would be history. You have people who look for commercial status. Obviously, that's thriller. You have people who look for a signature sound, signature era, signature theme. And so there it's between bad or off the wall. And you have people who consider your artistic, creative, most creative, most versatile, most ambitious album to be your most important because it shows what you can do. I mean, there's dangerous. So, I mean, I have to put this into terms and I maybe it'll make people change their minds. Maybe it'll make them double down. But I mean, the whole point was, you know, just to start conversation about it. I mean, like, hey, can we come to some type of maybe some type of general consensus here? Because to me, even when as I was typing, to me, it was pretty clear that it was between thriller or off the wall. I mean, but I mean, even so, Bad still had a very strong argument because compared to the others, there's nine out of 11 songs written solely by Michael Jackson. Only two were not, which is Man in the Mirror and Just Good Friends. I mean, you could make an argument off that. That's him at that's him in the middle of probably his most prolific period, which was probably 85 to about 92. I think that's his most prolific period. I mean, a lot of songs came out of that because obviously we got the Bad Album, we got the Dangerous Album, but that was also where Earth Song came from. They Don't Care About Us, Someone Put Your Hand Out, other lots of other songs that came out later as well. So that was important. Um, but Dangerous, I mean, this is Michael Jackson, no longer with Quincy Jones at the helm. This is Michael Jackson creating his own project. Everything is Michael Jackson's final say. And so... That's very important because there's no argument that Quincy had any influence on this album. I mean, this is Michael taking complete control of his element, complete control of his career, complete control of his image, even though Bad was kind of the precursor to that because Quincy came in pretty late on the Bad Project. But Dangerous is that moment where people said, hey, Michael does not need Quincy Jones. Michael Jackson is his own artist. And so that's a very important argument. And then there's obviously history that everybody loves that Michael Jackson takes his personal statements and he relates them to everybody on a very broad scale. He makes his personal experiences relatable in the medium with they don't care about us, with money, 
with tabloid junkie. These are things we all consume every day. These are things we use every day. These are, these are concepts that we understand. And this is how he's relating to us. This is Michael Jackson saying, hey, I am a person. So that's very important. But at the same time, I felt like off the wall was probably his signature era. I mean, well, signature sound because, hey, I mean, even going forward, as far as dangerous, bad history, a deciding factor for a Michael Jackson song is, hey, how well does it make people want to dance? And I feel like songs that make people want to dance is nowhere better showcased than off the wall. And so I feel like from there you get the signature expectation, signature, you know, theme, signature goal of Michael Jackson's music from off the wall. But you cannot ignore what Thriller did for his career. I mean, without Thriller, the giant impenetrable juggernaut hold that Michael Jackson had on the entire 1980s does not exist if there is no Thriller. Because Thriller changed the entire music industry. It changed Michael Jackson's career forever. Every album after Thriller lived in the shadow of Thriller. The only album that you know a lot of casuals or critics will compare to Thriller is usually Off the Wall. And so for me, it came down to between those two. And so I said, okay, so why don't I remove an album? And obviously, Thriller left the biggest hole. And so that's how I came to my conclusion. And I wondered, you know, th but that was me. But, and I still felt that there would be people who feel like there are things that are more important to his artistry, to his legacy, to, you know, him showing what he could do as an artist, as a musician, as a producer, then maybe that. And so I felt like it was going to be a great conversation starter. And you totally, totally succeeded. And I love all of your thoughts. Uh, I absolutely do. And and just how you honor each album for what it was able to accomplish for his legacy in its own way is is really special. And what I want to do as we wrap up the show, I want to hear from from each of you. And then I'll say as well, what is Michael's magnum opus in your mind and 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 why? So Ricky, I think we get the picture of which one yours is, especially for people who've read the article. But Elise, what is Michael's magnum opus and why? Oh, man. Well, after we heard Ricky give this like amazing argument about his decision. Well, let me say this first. When I was reading this this little essay by you, Ricky, um, I found myself changing my mind as I went through each album. And you do a great job of, of guiding through that. I will maintain that for me bad is still so crucial because because he did write so much of the material and just because for me it represents this pinnacle of him just being at his absolute peak really in control of like the image he wanted to present and just having incredible energy all moving in the same direction and i just that always makes me absolutely happy although even now i mean i think today a lot i think bad is not actually that despite having all these great songs out of the people still remember i think a lot of people these days who are not like really big fans see bad as like this kind of cheese ball thing like of michael trying to be like this person maybe he wasn't i don't know if it really gets that much respect these days honestly besides a few of the key tracks but i don't know i still think it's so essential to his identity at that particular moment and really defining an era so i'm gonna go for bad even though ricky you make a better argument for thriller <laughs> <laughs> i tried my best <laughs> all right and ricky just summing up your uh your reason again and your your magnum opus 
I really still think Off the Wall is like almost a a 1B, but Thriller, it, you just have to give it to Thriller. Thriller is his most consistent. I mean, it's not just the biggest selling album of all time. I mean, how do you top that on any resume, much less Michael Jackson's resume? It's also probably his most consistent, his most timeless record as well. I mean, as you can see, it's still his the go-to videos-wise. It's still the go-to songs-wise with Beat It, Billie Jean. And I mean, even songs like Human Nature, PYT, Want to Be Starting Something. Thriller is guaranteed to be heard at Halloween every year. The Lady in My Life is considered one of his greatest songs, and that's an album cut. Baby Be Mine is even one, considered one of his gems, and that's an album cut. And compared to other albums where, you know, the album cuts don't get as much love, Thriller has that. And so, and I mean, of course, obviously it elevated him to that stature that he achieved with Bad as well. I mean, Bad is a better era because you got, you know, all these short films, you got the groundbreaking Bad Tour, of course. And of course, his signature music video, Smooth Criminal. It's just so hard to ignore the commercial stature of Thriller, because if you take Thriller out, if you jump off the wall to bad, I mean, you have a completely different Michael Jackson here. He's still great, but at the same time, he might not be propelled to the biggest, most famous celebrity of all time. You know what I mean? And so mm. there's just a huge gaping hole if you take Thriller out, if you ask me. And so I, it's just too hard to argue against, even though I think having a signature sound is almost as important to that. But I mean, how do you beat the biggest selling album of all time? It's the question Michael fought <laughs> with the, his entire life. How do you beat it? I mean, how can you argue against it? I mean, I just don't see any way. Well, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to hear it. Okay, here okay. we go. Okay, I, I do believe, for me, Michael Jackson's magnum opus is actually off the wall. Oh, okay. Yeah. For me, just for me, just for me, because there's like, for me, I got to think about what an album is, right? Like what if, what is an album? An album is a collection of songs. And what do I appreciate most about a collection of songs? I like a cohesive collection. That's something that's, you know, there's, there's elements that flow through the entire album on each song. And this is a very personal thing and an opinion thing for sure. But for me, Off the Wall is his best album because just aside from the strength of the songs, and if we're thinking about like, you know, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, Work and Day and Night, we, we've got some really, really killer strong tracks on that album, Rock With You. But even aside from that, the personnel that are working on the album, there is so much cohesion and continuity between those songs like if you listen to don't stop till you get enough and then just flip straight to like a track way later in the album it's going to sound like it came from the the same sessions because the album was recorded just within a you know a brief space of time with the same sort of session musicians on most of the songs lewis johnson on bass and i don't know there's just something about it that it's like a journey that it takes you on from start to finish and it and it just feels really cohesive and for me that's i think that's what the critics tap into because without a doubt off the wall is his most critically acclaimed album i think it's like nearly every reviewer who whoever reviewed it gave it like five you know four and a half five stars and but that's not to say that other albums don't have stronger high points like i think thriller has absolutely stronger high points with with billy jean and and then, you know, Bad with The Way You Make Me Feel probably in Man in the Mirror and then Dangerous with Jam and 
you know, other songs. But when I think of Off the Wall, I think of a tight album from start to finish that is a journey that it takes you on the whole way through. And that's why I think Off the Wall is Michael's magnum opus. I don't know if I did a good job explaining that, but just an opinion anyway. So I think you did. You did a very good job. You guys, I did not win that debate. <laughs> oh, come on. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I went with my heart. The way you described the bad album as being cheese ball, I, I'd kind of describe more the Moonwalker movie like that. But <laughs> No, do not put down Moonwalker. Oh, my Ooh, God. That was, I, I just hit low, didn't I? <laughs> I've never considered bad to be cheesy, though. That's just. I would say with bad that's the one that I feel like people kind of who are just casual listeners give the hardest time to that like album cover. And I don't know, that's what I feel like I hear from people. So I guess I'm in a constant mode of like defending it. (laughs) Guys, we are going to wrap this show up. I think that was a really cool uh, way to finish our episode. Our first episode back in season seven. Uh, before we wrap up, I know that listeners of the MJ cast are absolutely going to want to find out where to contact Ricky online, uh, especially on your social media, Ricky. So could you let our listeners know where they can where they can find you? Well, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm pretty much on there all the time. Um, my Twitter is ASAP, two underscores, R-I-C-K-E-Y. Um, you can also find me on Facebook. My name is Ricky Alexander, and that's the main social media I use. And you can find links to my Medium profile. I write. I have a few more articles other than this one. Yeah, that, those are the best places to reach me, though. Um, yeah. Elise and I both agree how beautifully you spark discussion about all kinds of different things. So that is one of the, the best reasons to follow, Ricky, is because every day there's a new topic on there. I think I reply to you more than any other Michael Jackson fan I follow, just because you just <laughs> you put things on there that just really, really make me think. Uh, so thank you so much, Ricky. And of course, uh, the MJ cast, our uh, Michael Jackson podcast, you can find us all over the internet. You can find us at themjcast.com if you want to find our website, which is a repository for all of our episodes and articles. You can also find us at the MJ cast on all the different social media platforms. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. You can email us at the at iCloud.com. We love getting emails from listeners all around the world. Thank you again for those of you who responded to our end of season six survey really really appreciate the depth and detail people went into and how invested so many people are in our little old michael jackson podcast uh, which is sure to keep going strong for many many seasons to come and also if you want to subscribe to us please do if you're listening on the website or youtube thank you we still value you listening but i've got to say when you subscribe to the mj cast on a podcast platform like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Podcasts or something like that, you are going to get a totally different experience because we are a podcast. So when you listen on those platforms and we're talking about certain things, you can interact with the show notes live and go to different things we're talking about and and really, really engage. You can pause and play and come back to shows later from where you left off. You can skip chapters and um, really enjoy it in that way. So please do subscribe to the MJ cast rate and review us, please, on the platform you're listening to us on. That really helps us in terms of visibility of the show. 
and thank you so much for tuning in. We've got a great season seven planned with so many awesome episodes to come, including lots of specials we've already lined up with guests that are going to give us wonderful insights into the life of Michael Jackson. Just to wrap up, I want to thank you so much, Ricky Alexander, for joining us on our first episode of season seven. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've had so much fun. Thank you guys for inviting me back. I Hopefully I can come back again soon. We'd love that. For sure. Whenever you have me, I'll be here. <laughs> and Elise, it has been awesome being able to talk to you on the same episode. We really are two different people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to sign off because my little daughter and my wife are waiting for me. We're going to jump in the car and go to the beach and have a great afternoon. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of the MJ Cast. We can't wait for a great season seven. Bye for now. Keep Michaeling. Elise. Stay bad. Oh, <laughs> you were getting there. <laughs> Wait, stay bad. No, how do I do it? You, you, that was per, the, the first one was good. The second one was a little intense. <laughs> stay bad. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Then we got a little bit sensual on that one. <laughs> Do you have a sign off? (laughs) Peace out. have caused some commotion in our MJ cast group chat because we're all wondering whether you've come to your senses yet and have started liking George Michael. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't Nobody really listens to him here. So I, I mean, I just never really had a chance to just discover him naturally. So that's, that's why I asked. I see a lot of my mutuals talk about him. I've had one person in my real life talk to me about him, um, an older gentleman. And he was like, George Michael was like Adele is now. People in the inner city who typically don't listen to that, you know, type of artist listen to him because he made such good music. Like Adele is so you know, heavily played now. He said back in the eighties, George Michael was that, and but I never checked him out. But I did listen to Careless Whisper while I was in the car that day, and I was like, "What? I think I've heard this. It's pretty good." I enjoyed the um, performance that I was sent as well, where he covered "Somebody to Love." I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, I'm not. I can't say I'm a fan yet, but I I do like what I've heard about him. Uh, he seems like he was a pretty decent guy. Before that, all I ever knew was um, his quote-unquote take on MJ. So, I mean, I didn't have much to go off of, but I think I'm getting there. I think I'm going to listen to him a little bit more while I'm at work and see what I like. Very nice. Very nice. We'll we'll keep uh, talking in the group chat and strategically sending you uh, certain songs that uh, <laughs> are going to turn you around. But yeah, I, I love George Michael. I love that um, 
he performed at at the MTV 10th anniversary uh, at the same the same performance as Michael actually. Um, oh, yeah, but, yeah. I sent you that one last night, so have a have a watch of that if you get a chance. I most definitely will. And there's no chance I'm falling asleep, so I think I'm going to check that out when I get in the bed. Definitely be sure to listen to John Cameron's two episodes on George Michael because they really are great and will promise lead to your appreciation of his work. Okay. I will definitely check those out too.